0: Allow me to reintroduce myself. My name is Ho. Oh, H to the OV. I used to move snowflakes by the O Z. I I guess even back then you can call me CEO of the ROC. Ho. Fresh out the frying pan into the fire. I beat the music biz number one supplier. Fly it in a piece of paper bearing my name. Got the hottest chick in the game wearing my chain. That's right, Ho. Not DOC, but similar to them letters. No one could do it better. I check chatter like a food inspector my homie strict told me do finish your breakfast
1: what's good everybody and welcome to another episode of the Amatelaka is podcast with your host yours surely Jai Shields here on this Tuesday December the 19th 6 days out from Christmas 2023, and boy, do we have a jam-packed show of all things National Football League-related here for you on this Tuesday program, Week 15 Recap. Go over the games and recap and give you my reaction and my analysis of the various different football games that Concluded a uh, busy week 15 in the National Football League. I'll get to the Bills dominating the Cowboys, what it means for both teams. Baker Mayfield had a day in Green Bay. We'll get to that. The uh, Texans and the Browns eke out victories against the uh, Bears and the Tennessee Titans, respectively. The Lions pummeled the Broncos on Saturday night. My Cincinnati Bengals, my goodness gracious, what a win, what a game on Saturday afternoon in the jungle against the Vikings. And uh introduce a new segment for the program uh, and that is uh, some voicemails. Uh so we try to what we try to do is uh get you guys involved get you guys involved with the program and that entails of uh and that entails of you guys leaving a voice ma me- uh, either a voice memo or a voice uh Voicemail to me, and i 'll actually tell you all how to do that. I know that anchor now Spotify, whatever it 's called now, uh, has its own little way to do it, but for the quickest way for it to get to me you don 't have to go through many hula hoops, just uh record a voice memo or quote unquote voicemail per se on your phone. And uh, email it to me, and I'll give you the email address right now shields, S H I L D 15 at gmail.com. Shields J 15 at gmail.com. Leave a uh, voicemail no longer than five minutes, and you guys can uh, say, because at least I, right now, during the Christmas holiday, where the times I'm recording may not be conventional for you guys to. You know, join me for a mono mono live conversation via Zoom or whatever. So I figured the next best thing have you guys uh, have you guys leave voice memos for me, so at least I can get you guys involved in some form of fashion uh, in throughout our programs during this as we come down the home stretch of this football season. But uh, so we'll get to that, and we got some uh, voicemails I want to get to a little bit later on in the program. Uh, as the show moves itself along. Well, where we will begin is with the Monday Night Football game that is, with the Monday Night Football game that was. And boy, oh boy, oh boy, what a game. And I tell you, the Monday Monday Night games this season, before I get to the games, the Monday Night Football games this season have low-key, have had, the best primetime games of this twenty twenty three NFL of this twenty twenty three NFL season, and you know, throw in the fact that they obviously this is the second year of Buck and Aikman, Lisa Salters, who in my opinion is the best si- pound for pound sideline reporter in all of uh, NFL television of ne- of all the networks. She's the best one pound for pound. Uh, She, I mean, she is, she is the, quote, South Park. She is, yeah, and everybody else is, yeah. So... So you have, so she and she's been a staple of Monday Night Football for the last decade plus. And then throwing Buck and Aikman, they bring back the original heavy action theme. And so it's like Monday Night Football is starting to feel like Monday Night Football again. Throwing the fact that the NFL for the first time ever flexed the game into Monday Night Football, which ended up being the Seahawks and uh, the Seahawks and Eagle game. But I mean, look at the games that we've had. You had the Xavier Gibson overtime game week one when Aaron Rodgers got hurt. Uh, The Steelers-Browns game wasn't bad. The following week and week two was a very entertaining football game. Uh, week number, I mean, the games weeks four and five were bad. Week six, it was okay. Cowboys and the Chargers. Chargers had a chance to win the game late. Herbert threw the interception. Minnesota and San Francisco was damn good. Seeing San Francisco get upset and Kirk Cousins, who has been notoriously, uh, who has been infamous for embarrassing himself, especially on the Monday Night Football. Uh, stage has the, plays his best Monday Night Football game of his career and beats the San Francisco 17 on October twenty third. Games weeks eight and nine bad games week ten excellent game Denver and Buffalo, twelve men bells out a uh, bells out a missed uh, Will Lutz game winning field goal gives him five yards he makes the kick. Upsets Buffalo 24-22 on November 13th. Then, of course, the highly anticipated Super Bowl rematch between the Eagles and Kansas City was a solid game as well. Uh, Chicago and Minnesota was unwatchable, but a competitive game nevertheless that came down to a game-winning kick. The Jake Browning game a few weeks back, week 13, 34-31 Cincinnati over Jacksonville. The two Monday night games we had last week that were close, game-winning field goal with Fat Randy Uh, up in Jersey and then the Titans and then the Titans stealing a game from the Miami Dolphins down two scores with less than three minutes to go in the game and the historical parameters that entailed with that comeback as we discussed and then uh, and then throw in um, the game last night and quite actually you've had yourself a damn good Monday night football schedule all things all things considered and it gets better the the last actual monday night monday night football game where the game falls on actually a monday night Obviously it's Christmas night with the Ravens and the 49ers week 16 and then week 17 because new year's falls on new year's day and ESPN and ABC obviously have their college football bowl game obligations. The quote unquote Monday night football game for week 17 is moved up to Saturday, the 30th, new year's Eve, Eve. And who do you have in that game? The lions against the Dallas Cowboys. So uh so it looks like that Monday night football is on it is on its way back and they've kind of at least here in twenty twenty three at least, are slowly but surely breaking out of the doldrums of the Laissez faire uh ye- Fair years of Monday night football through, you know, from the mid from the mid two thousand tens through the exit of the decade. But anyway, I just wanted just to get give uh, Monday Night Football its props. And speaking of Monday Night Football, that is why, ladies and gentlemen, why it's the best prime time stage. It still is the greatest prime time stage. And all the sports you have, you have two teams in a great environment versus which is Seattle. And Seattle, listen, they're not a and we'll get to them in a minute. They're not a good football team. I don't look at Seattle and see playoffs now because of the fact that the Vikings blew a seventeen to three lead against my Bengals on Sunday. It opens up the gate for the Seahawks to make the playoffs after all, even with uh, the Rams winning on Sunday and holding tiebreaker over Seattle, but. Uh, But that's why it's the best stage. That's why. A great environment, and that's probably – Eagles, the defending NFC champions, Jalen Hurts, Philadelphia market, whole nine yards. And you put the game – if it was in Philly, it'd be great. You put the game in Seattle, dare you say it's even better because the ambiance of that crowd. I mean, it's Seattle and Kansas City where the crowd, the stadium and the crowd noise adds – a layer to the ambiance and adds to the dramatic effect of a football game. And this, listen, this, this is a average, slightly above average Seattle Seahawks team, but the way, but how hard it is to win there, especially in prime time, it, it it's bound to make an interesting and in, entertaining game nevertheless. And it's funny, I was going to bed last night, and I will get to the game, prom, I promise you, I just want to get these, uh, you know, these... These uh, initial thoughts surrounding the game off my off the top of my dome first, but I was thinking about it. I was going to bed last night. It seems like damn every single time you got a Monday night football game in Seattle, the the, the game goes the game is won for the ages. Last night, of course, the Geno Smith game beating Russell Wilson week one of the tw- uh, week one of last season, the Thelma Mary game in two thousand and twelve. Um, I can think of. I uh, they had the game. I think it was against Atlanta, if I'm not mistaken. Where they had an opportunity to win the game with the game-winning field goal it was like a 58 yard or some long field goal. I forget who their kicker was at the time. Might have been Blair Walsh, might have not been. But they had an opportunity to hit, to hit an extra game-winning field goal that fell just short. That game was all swins. Yeah. I mean so every single time Seattle hosts a home Monday night fo- hosts a Monday night football game, something zany and crazy happens and you leave and you leave the game saying, What the hell did I just watch? But it's a weird coincidence with with Seattle, who historically, at least within the last decade or so, have been a solid team on Monday night football, always more times than not an entertaining watch. Hell, they blew out the Giants and found a way to make that game interesting with pick sixes, sacks left and right. When they blew out the Giants back in early, back in early October at the Meadowlands, so Seattle two two and zero on Monday Night Football this year, and uh, you sure get if you're the NFL and if you're ESPN, you know, and that's why they that's why they had no problems flexing this game because Seattle, for whatever the reason, no matter who's on the team and how good the team, if Seattle is. At least an average football team. You put them on Monday Night Football, they'll give you your bang for your buck in terms of entertainment value. They they're a frustrating team to watch, but especially in that building, they're on Monday Night. They're not boring. You know, the Sunday night, Thursday it's something about I guess it's, be, it's something about Monday Night Football. Maybe it's the beginning of the work week, and they have, and they've waited all weekend. And and it's a work day. because because remember Monday night football played on the West Coast, that's a five fifteen local kick, you know. So I mean, if this game was played in September, the sun the sun would probably not even probably the sun would have been out all the way to the end of the game. But you know, obviously daylight saving time thing of the past, it's dark. You know, it's just as dark in Seattle at five fifteen as it is here in the East Coast at eight fifteen. But they always, 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 the Seattle Seahawks more times than not give you an entertaining game on Monday Night Football. What an entertaining game it was between the Philadelphia Eagles and the Seattle Seahawks. Let me do the Seahawks first as, you know, and then work my way to Philadelphia and everything else. Uh, give Seattle credit, man. They, they, they hung in there. They made a plethora of mistakes, including Pete Carroll screwing up his timeout management in the fourth quarter. Here it is, Seattle's down a score. They have an inferior roster, inferior team, inferior, quarter, maybe not inferior coaching staff, but an inferior roster, including the quarterback position, 1 through 53. And you could, at least with me, you felt and you could sense that if Seattle was, was up the garbage, uh, and was and was vomiting all over himself and left the door open for Philly because Philly's the better team. Had to had, you ju- you had a feeling, at least it, maybe not the Eagles fans, but I had a feeling Seattle keeps playing around with their food. Eventually, Philadelphia is gonna no pun intended swoop in and steal it right from them and win this game. They have no business winning, which has been essentially the mo for this team. You know, out of the majority of their ten wins that they have this season. But so I had a feeling that the, that Seattle was going to lose this game, especially in painful painful fashion in the fourth quarter. And here it is: Pete Carroll in a one-possession game in the fourth quarter. He wait. He uses one timeout because, to avoid the delay game. Then he uses another one, which gives Nick Sirianni an opportunity to to challenge, which which I th- which I am not not only costs Seattle yardage, I believe it also causes them to play as well. So, which was just a dumb, dumb, dumb move on the part of P Carroll. On top of the fact you're using two, of your timeouts. It's a one possession game. You got to go to the remainder of the fourth quarter with a one in a one possession game with one timeout remaining. I mean that that's 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 coaching one on one. You want to especially if you especially if you are losing. You if you're losing, you want to use as minimal of your timeouts as you possibly can minimal you you don't want you don't, you don't want to use a timeout especially in the fourth quarter you don't want to use a timeout in a tight game like that unless you absolutely have to and using them twice within uh what a five game of game time Increment of each other. I mean, I'm saying to myself, and I tweet I'm like, Pete, what the hell are you doing, man? It's like, your team has an opportunity to win the game, and you're not going to ha- give themselves an opportunity to win the game because you're using your timeouts like, you know, like like you have an unlimited supply. But they hung in, nevertheless. The defense did a sensational job. Ju- I mean, and I get the Philadelphia's aspect in a minute, but I give the Seattle Seahawks defense credit outside of the C- outside of Philadelphia's opening drive. They they did not let uh, Philadelphia march down the field with such ease as you would anticipate heading into this game, and I thought the only for Seattle to win this game was to win it in a shootout, uh, much less a defensive you know twenty to seventeen slugfest with with Seattle driving down twenty to, down twenty to thirteen with less with a minute and change to go in regulation, but. Uh, you give them tremendous credit. They kept the Seattle offense in the game. You look at the You look at the drives for Philly in this game. After the opening drive touchdown, fifteen plays, seventy-five yards, which took up half of the first quarter. Eagles possessions went three plays, no yards, punt. Uh, sixteen plays, sixty-three yards, field goal, and then they had and then they had two and then they had uh two consecutive punts, then that touchdown at the beginning of the third quarter. Then another punt, interception, punt. So they, so Seattle forced Philadelphia to punt. One, they had two interceptions. They had two interceptions plus one, two, three, four punts, two turnovers, four punts, two touchdowns, and one field goal. Not, not they could have, could they have been better defensively with Seattle? Yeah, sure. But all things considered, all you ask is to give your offense a chance. And they did a sensational job in the fourth quarter. Uh, Philadelphia gets the ball first and ten with 6.35 to go in the fourth quarter. A three-yard run by Gainwell. Why, again, they're going Gainwell instead of Swift. I have no no clue. Gets three yards, second and seven. Six-yard run. Gets it to third and one. They tush-push. First and ten with four thirty one with four thirty one remaining. Swift gets the eleven yard gain and once and they're right at midfield with an opportunity to essentially on a third and seven put the game away. And the Seattle Seahawks defense, they pressure Jalen Hurts. The coverage is is tight nip and tuck. And Hurts throws it downfield and there's nobody home. There's nobody open. They did it since they the exact definition of a bend. But don't break defense. Seattle did a sensational job. And in terms of Seattle offensively, especially in that final drive, how about Drew Locke, man? Drew Locke, the quarterback that they traded from, that they got in the Russell Wilson trade from the Denver Broncos, who was a last-minute, who got the last-minute nod to start uh, against Philadelphia, who played in the game the week before on the road against San Francisco, did not play a great game twenty two or thirty three two oh eight one touchdown pass. But listen, he got sacked twice, and I get them. That's and that speaks more about Philadelphia more than it does uh, Seattle. And Drew Lock didn't get sacked until until the thir- until about mid late third quarter, if my memory off the rip serves me correctly. He didn't play a great game. Now I get to his final drive, which was sensational football, but overall with the game, he didn't play a great game. They only scored 20 points and two touchdowns. Granted, they came in the second half, but he did I tell you one thing, you give him credit, with this, he didn't lose the game for him. He wasn't careless with the football in the the pocket when the times that Philadelphia was able to get pressure home. He didn't force feed the ball. He got very, very fortunate quite a few times where it should have been easy interceptions for Philadelphia and and the ball bounced uh, Seattle's way. But he didn't turn over the football, took care of it, protected it, and relied on his stars around him, Metcalf, Lockett, Jackson Smith and Njigba, Kenneth Walker had a, had a damn good second half, which I thought was a very uh, key focal point in the game for Seattle for not putting the ball in Lock's hands so much in the second half. Uh, and again, it got into a little bit more of a rhythm offensively with running the football, keeping Philadelphia's defense on the field as much as they possibly can while keeping Jalen Hurts. And here's the thing, too. And my sister, I turned on the game at kickoff. My sister who saw Jalen Hurts, you know, warm up and saw, you know, the B-roll that ABC and them, you know, they air the players that are out there on the field prior to the game. He said that when he was on the bench, he was like sitting in a position with the overcoat on and his eyes were kind of like half shut. And you get the and he goes out there on the field, and it's like, I mean, you know he's sick, you know he's not feeling well, but it's, it's, he's not so bad that he actually feel like he's going to collapse right in the middle of the football field because he has no energy in his body, and why that's why I'm bringing it up is because it f- sounds like and it feels like that it's, that it's Seattle took one of, took the stance of, listen, it's cold, it's raining, he's sick." More likely than not, he's going to feel, he doesn't feel his absolute best 100%, but odds are he's going to feel, he's going to reach his peak of comfortability in him fighting this, fighting, you know, this, fighting the sickness when he's out on the field, he's moving, he keeps, he's keeping his heart rate up his body temperature up, create, you know, he he's 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 working himself to fight off the chills and everything. He's working himself. So, and I guarantee Seattle was like, "Okay. So not only do we have to keep Eagles offense off the field so they don't touch the ball as much, they don't wear it in our defense in order to, and to provide them as little time with the football as possible because that's the only way we're going to win this game." I are um their viewpoint and their vantage point with running football, especially in the second half, was listen, we don't want to become a one-dimensional offense with a backup quarterback. I understand that their secondary isn't that good, but still they are a better football team than us. And you don't wanna you don't want you don't want to uh give a superior football team any uh added advantage to beating you, especially when you're losing in the second half. On top of the fact they probably, this is just my intuition, but somebody had to be like, "Yo, Jalen Hurts." You look at him on the sideline; he's freaking miserable. He's got the overcoat; he's got the overcoat on. He's to himself. He's probably shivering because he's got the chills and everything. He is miserable on the sideline, and when he and his body temperature is going to come down, his body temperature and his heart rate's coming down. When he's when he's on the sideline, he's miserable. He's out there on he's out there on the court, or on the court, I'm, because I say on the court because I'm thinking of the Jordan food poisoning game when they broke down in the last dance. Obviously, when Jordan was you know when he was on the floor, you know he was he he was he was fine. But whenever the whistle blew and there was a breaking and he had to go to the bench. He was a, he was a mess. C- couldn't sit up. Sh- couldn't sit up straight. Could hardly stand. Sweating profusely. His body was just one i mean it was just one it was weak it was his body was just it, like it had it had no strength or no like pure control of it you know when he wasn't going up and down the field similar thing with Jalen Hurts when he's on the field you know running in and outside the pocket and you know and trying to find receivers up and down field he's fine he took him off the field and he's sitting there on the sideline you know not moving with the overcoat on the chills and all of the symptoms of him being sick is going to hit him like a, is going to hit him like an avalanche. So what does Seattle do in the second half? They give Kenneth Walker the ball, and it, in my opinion, is what helps sway the momentum of the game. Getting Kenneth Walker involved in the second half, they gave him 19 carries, 86 yards, average four and a half yards per carry uh, in the first, uh, and scored a touchdown. If you look on Seattle's first touchdown, if you look on Seattle's first touchdown drive. Of the game and uh, to be just at the start of the uh, third at start of the third quarter, what do they do? What do they do? They give the Ken they give the Kenneth Walker on a pass play on first on first and ten. They give him to him second and two. Picks up the first down, first down. They give it to him for a seven yard they give it to him for a seven yard gain. Second and three. They throw the ball to Kenneth Walker. Uh fast forward a few play fast forward a few play a few plays later, third and one. They got the ball to Philadelphia swing at the yard one. 10-13 to go in the third quarter. They give the ball to Kenneth Walker for a twenty three yard gain and touchdown. Excellent blocking all the way through Drew Locke Excellent job uh, getting out, swinging outside, and being the lead blocker for Kenneth Walker so he can score the touchdown. And my humble opinion—that's what I think was the turning point in the game. And also going back to Seattle's defense, give them credit too, because had because they had to settle to kick the field goal when they quite honestly should have had a touchdown on that on that uh, on that possession. They give they kick a field goal to 10 ten three. Billy goes four plays, fifteen yards, punts. Seattle three plays, negative two yards, punt. Philadelphia has the ball at their own thirty-two yard line with twenty with twenty-seven seconds left, with an opportunity to go up two scores heading into the halftime locker room. And the Seattle Seahawks defense three plays. Six yards only takes twenty-seven seconds off the clock, and and uh, excuse me, Philadelphia goes into the halftime locker room without yet another score. And Drew Locke, his final drive man, was epic. Uh, I mean, the ball placement on the touchdown pass, touchdown pass to Jackson Smith and Jigba, was was as gorgeous of of a, of a touch of an over-the-shoulder touch pass you're ever going to see in your life. The ball placement to DK Metcalf was sensational. I mean, that's you want to talk about knowing where your receiver is and knowing the strengths of your receiver and taking the necessary risks in order to play to your playmaker's advantages, That's what we did. And that's why, you know, the Seattle Seahawks, whether it be their fan base or the coaching staff, that's why they can tolerate and put up with DK Metcalf having such a quick trigger and a, and a, and, and a quick fuse, you know, when he's out there uh, fighting, you know, Dre Greenland Long getting into fights and getting into skirmishes. That's why they. That's why they can stomach it because every because he shows up and on on stages such as this or the Cowboy game back at the beginning of the month and he goes out there and he balls out especially during the final especially during the final drive. I mean, look at this for look at this. I mean, he caught a on, on second and ten. He caught a pat caught a pass play second and ten. They had to the ball out there on eight yard line, eighteen yard gain for a, for eighteen yard gain for a first down. He gets the ball on, he gets the ball on second, second and five that goes through the hand that goes off, off of Bradbury and finds Metcalf on second and five. He gets it for a six-yard gain, moves the ball downfield for another, for another Seattle first down. Then he hits him on a clutch third and ten near the sideline. Like, it's like the only person that's catching this football is Deacon Metcalf. Pinpoint direct pinpoint control of his pass, finds DK, I don't know how he caught the how he caught the ball, catches it near the sideline on a third and ten to not only move the sticks, but to get uh, but to move inside Philadelphia territory to have the ball thrown 29-yard line. I mean Locke, his throws throughout that final drive were sensational, and DK Metcalf was arguably the MVP of that final drive. He was absolutely send. Sensational! His ability to catch to catch passes in tight coverage, the separation. I mean, he 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 was he was great, and that is why and that is why DK Metcalf is the type of is such a solid, and is the solid wide receiver that he is. You know, and there will be games where it's like, is Metcalf on the field? You know, why isn't DK Metcalf getting the football? And then there will be games where. Where he'll you know he'll go crazy from quarter one through quarter four like the Cowboy game, and then there'll be games where you know he'll he'll you know you won't notice him for three quarters or or for fifty five, fifty seven, fifty eight, or hell fifty nine minutes, but in that final minute or two that makes or breaks a football game, he'll show up and he'll rise to the occasion and he'll dog walk the he'll single single handedly dog walk the Eagles secondary. And before you know it, you got yourself another Seattle Seahawks victory on Monday Night Football. They improved their record to seven and seven, uh, and with their season essentially hanging in the balance with the Titans, the Steelers, and the Cardinals, which is not an impossible schedule down the stretch. But will you figure with them not having tiebreaker against the Rams and them falling to six and eight? Would be rather dubious, and you feel like that that ten and seven may have to get you into the playoffs. Nine and eight could, depending on the t- depending on uh, the team's specific tiebreakers. But Seattle, of course, not having a tiebreaker over the Rams, which kills them. You know, you bet you want to strive to get that extra game, so you don't have to f- worry about falling victim of the aforementioned tiebreaker. But Seattle, what a sensational win! Give them all the credit in the world. Now, on the other side of this. The Philadelphia Eagles. The Philadelphia Eagles. First off, let's go back to the final drive. How in the world James Bradbury is, I mean, gets burnt? And I'll get to the Cy and Patricia, the two stooges on the defensive side of the football in a minute. But how in the, but how James Bradbury allows himself to get burnt, uh, mono on mono coverage by not just Jackson Smith and Jigba. On the touchdown pass, but by Metcalf all drive long as we've discussed. I mean that that that's that's horri- that is horrific, horrific defense. He thinks and listen. There are certain wide receivers that you can press at the line of scrimmage, and you can you can lock them up, you can lock them down. I'm not going to get targets, not going to create separation, not going to get open, not going to catch catch passes. But receivers like a DK Metcalf who is built like a modern day, I mean, not in a modern day, they played in the same era, but who is the 2023 in terms of physical archetype version of a Calvin Johnson or a Julio Jones. Not just a not just a fast guy that can you know that can run a four and has great hands. No, this is a guy that that it that is that is yoked, that is built, that is, that is muscular and, and and more importantly strong as hell. And you do yourself no favors pressing him up at the line of scrimmage with especially when you got no help over the top with an extra safety. You do yourself no favors pressing him the line of scrimmage, especially in a situation where Seattle. Has to get chunk plays. Now, they didn't have to because they had a timeout left and over a minute to work with. Now, granted, they had to march down about ninety yards to uh, to to take the lead. But in that situation, you know, Seattle isn't isn't gonna you know be conservative with their pass plays and with their play calling in general because they're down four. They need a touchdown to win the game. So they're not going to play conservative and go, oh, well, we'll run here so we can milk the clock and we have a nice little cute little five-yard pass play over the middle and, oh, here's a, who's, here's a nice little screen play for three yards. No, they want to move the ball downfield and get into the end zone. Doesn't matter if there's 50, if there's 50 seconds, 30 seconds five seconds, or no time left on the clock. Their goal with 90 yards of real estate to work with is to get as many chunk plays as possible so they don't have to use the timeout with, you know, 30 seconds to go and they're barely at midfield or just past midfield. And here's Bradbury playing press coverage on a a guy that's as strong as a damn ox, you know, who's one of the fastest wide receivers in all of the, one of the most physical and fastest wide receivers in the NFL, and here's Bradbury playing press up against them one-on-one. And then the idiot Sean Desai and or Matt Patricia one safety high coverage. What? Why Why do you have one safety high coverage? Why? I don't get it. And if you do anything and and if you do any homework on drew lock you know one of his strengths is what the deep ball the deep passing game where you get him is on the is on the short intermediate passes what is the, what does the uh what does the eagles defense do place drew lock's strength and allow and a giving him space over the top with only one with with one safe with one safety high. Uh, to allow him to throw the deep ball to JSN and DK Metcalf all drive long. I mean, that is horrendous, horrendous coaching. Horrendous. Awful. Awful. And then, and how, and the defense in general... Not that good anyway. Now and I understand also if you can say and I'm a dick getting to the grits of the Eagles defense in a minute, but I understand that it wasn't the sole, it wasn't the lone reason why they lost. I mean you hold a team the foot you hold a team to uh, to 13 points heading into the final minute and change of the fourth quarter. You would expect to win the football game. I, under, I understand that. And again, Drew Lock did not have a great game. Kenneth Walker, the third, did have a great game. DK Metcalf was clutch. And in that aspect, he had a great game. But he didn't blow up He didn't blow up the stat sheet. Neither did Jackson Smith and Jigba, who only caught four passes for 48 yards on the night. But it's but it's but even with the Eagles having a solid, respectable, winnable defense performance, once again they sh- they they show signs of why this is not a good defense. This defense for the for the, for the Philadelphia Eagles, ladies and gentlemen, their defense stinks. They gave up thirty three points, three hundred and thirty three hundred ninety four yards to to the blowout loss against Dallas uh, two games two games ago. They gave up forty-two points, four hundred and fifty-six yards of offense, and Brock Purdy threw four touchdown passes, and uh, and uh, Debo Samuel uh, recorded three touchdowns on the on the afternoon slash evening for San Francisco. Uh, about uh, what? What was that? Two? Yeah, two, yeah, two weeks ago. Five hundred five yards allowed, thirty-four points in their overtime win against Buffalo on Thanksgiving weekend. 406 yards and 374 of the 406 yards uh, uh, recorded was was via passing by Dak Prescott. CeeDee Lamb was nine yards shy of having a 200-yard receiving game. This is the Cowboy game up in Philadelphia, a game that they won in the final closing seconds. They gave up 31 points, not once, but twice to Washington and Sam Howell. And they did nothing in terms of a pass rush all night. They got two sacks and they didn't even get and they didn't even get their first one until well into the second half of the game. How is that, how in the world is that possible? And it's not that you haven't had your chances. Seattle threw the football 33 times last night to only 23 rushing attempts. They threw the ball ten more times than they ran it. And he only racked up two sacks. And went an entire half without a sack. Entire half. They've given up points. at Infinitum to Dallas, San Francisco, hell, Washington. They allowed Mac Jones to look competent against them in week one. Bills put up over 500 yards of total offense and 34 points in the overtime game. That the, that Buffalo's defense handed to Philadelphia, this defense is not that good. Throwing the fact that they that they have a fiasco going on with their coaching staff. I mean, let me get this straight: the, the Philadelphia Eagles are going to, and I understand he wasn't the head coach when it, you know for this Eagles team when it happened. But let me get this straight: you're going to bring in a guy Matt Patricia, who single handedly cursed, not cursed, but ruined the Patriots and ruined. Mac Jones and their offense last season who had no idea what the hell he's doing who who ruined the and, and poisoned the Detroit Lions when he was there at head coach this is all after when his defense was offensively bad against the backup quarterback folk hero and Nick Foles surrendering 41 points in the Super Bowl back in 2017 and what does Philadelphia do? They make him the defensive play caller. Why? I tell you. McDaniels, Patricia, Bill O'Brien. I mean, there is a laundry list of coaches that really have no idea what the hell they're doing that owe their, that should cut a third of their paycheck to Tom Brady and, and to Bill Belichick. Because it, it, I, 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 this is this is unbelievable, and again, I understand that he wasn't that he you know that that was Doug Peterson's Eagles and not Nick Sirianni's Eagles. But somebody has to explain. Somebody should have told Sirianni, "Hey, Nick, you, you're gonna you're gonna have the defensive coordinator that gave up 41 points to a backup quarterback in, in a Super Bowl that we as a franchise won a short what six years ago." You gonna have him call your call plays now? Why is he even on the defensive coaching staff? Is my question. If if Bill Belichick let him go because he poisoned their offense last year, what does that tell you? And he wasn't a great defensive coordinator to begin with. So we'll have him call the plays, Sean decide who's the DC. I don't know. I mean. If the point of a defensive coordinator is, is that he's there to call the is he's there to call the defense. If you have a defensive coordinator that's not calling the defense, you're wasting your time. Why is he still on the payroll? If their front four to front seven don't get pressure, their defense does literally nothing unless the unless the offense that they're guarding against and trying to stop can't move the ball downfield because of self-inflicted ineptitude. Their linebackers aren't very good their 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 secondary is weak as hell they miss c j Gardner Johnson in the worst way they don't force the extreme level of turnovers that they did last year in their Super Bowl season as they as they have thus far this year their defense is awful and their offense is not much better they I mean, when I tell you right now that the Philadelphia Eagles offense, outside of their tu- outside of the touchdown that they scored on their first possession in the third quarter, outside of their opening drives to begin both halves, drive to start the game in the first quarter and the drive to come out of the halftime or their first drive out of the halftime locker. Well, I mean to tell you that outside of those two opening possessions on the front and the back end, of the of the of the of the game, when I mean to tell you, the Eagles' offense did nothing outside of those two possessions. I'm not exercising in hyperbole when I say that. Outside of those two possessions, their first coming out of the halftime locker room and their first to start the game coming out of the locker room to begin the game. Outside of those two touchdown possessions, 15 plays, 75 yards, and then uh, 12th place, 75 yards in the third quarter to make to take the lead. 17 down. They did nothing. Nothing in the game. Absolutely nothing. Nothing. They they couldn't run the ball. Effectively, as you would like. DeAndre Swift, 18 carries, 74 yards. Gainwell, 6 carries, 21 yards. He's got a bad knee, and he's fighting a sickness so bad that he had to fly isolated. To you know, from Philly to Seattle, let's put the ball in Jalen Hurts' hands thirteen times. Yes, he ran for eighty-two yards and had six point three yards of carry, and ran for two touchdowns. Who cares? And the thing I also found funny, and I even tweeted this: Did you notice, especially early in the game, damn near every single pass play? Philadelphia was able to get big yardage, whether it was Dallas Goddards periodically, whether it was um, whether it was to AJ Brown, Devonte Smith. They were able to move the ball in the passing game early to start. They were, to move, they were able to move the ball down the field. Seattle can't find an answer. They gave up. Jalen hurts through. Jalen hurts through for only for through for only a buck forty three. But in terms of the Eagles receivers, they averaged eight point four yards per reception. And what's Philadelphia doing? When Seattle can't find an answer for the for the various amounts of pass plays, when the one the and they repeatedly went to this play all night long. What they kept on calling? Screens. What was the one pass play Seattle was able to defend early, early in the game, heading into the halftime locker room? What was the one play Seattle was able to stop on a dime? Like no, you know, a player slips or is again. No, I mean, ball is in the wires, is in the pass catcher's hands and there's a Seattle defender there to meet him. The one play, the one play Seattle was able to stop on a dime with ease was the screen passes. So what does the Eagles? offensive coaching mastermind, Brian Johnson decided to punch up a crap ton of screen passes up the yin-yang. I mean, it it was either that or force feeding the ball downfield to AJ Brown. And I tell you something right now. I thought that it was a much to do about nothing when he was moaning and groaning. And when you heard rumblings of him, you know, getting in jail and hurts his grits uh, in the Washington game, I thought it was, I thought it was blown out of proportion but I'm telling you right now, after especially after watching uh, that game last night, you can't convince me otherwise that Jalen Hurts is going out of his way to the detriment of the football team to get A.J. Brown involved in the offense. He threw A.J. Brown the football 10 times last night. Threw it, threw it to Dallas Goddard 9, A.J. Brown 10. Threw it to A.J. Brown 10 times, and he only had... Half the receptions of his, and, the, and his reception numbers was half of his targets. 10 targets, 5 catches, 56 yards. And you you can't convince me, you can't convince me otherwise that he is trying to force feed, he's going to tr- forcing the issue and force feeding A.J. Brown to football. I don't know whether it's because he's, whether because the pain in the ass behind closed doors, I don't know whether it's because, uh, you know uh he he want he just wants the football and Jalen hurts who's a who's a mild mannered guy that's not looking to cause a lot of conflict who's you know who who realizes his position and realizes his role on the team wants to rise above any potential you know uh beef controversy and he says, all right well, let me be a good teammate, let me just shut up, keep my head down and when he asks for football, let me give it to him i don't know what I don't know what the case is. But it was clear, especially last night. I mean, they're showing tape, and they got Devontae. They got Devontae. He was open near the sideline uh, on the inter- on the interception to ice the game, and he was open on one play on a shallow crossing route, wide open. Where if he catches it, it's a twenty-five yard gain at minimum. And Jalen Hurst doesn't look his way the whole time, and he gives AJ Brown the ball. And then A.J. Brown goes on Twitter and says, well, you know, little do you know, I am the primary wide receiver for this specific play. Oh well, yeah, well, just because you're the primary wide receiver and the number one read doesn't mean that the ball should go to you every single time. The key is, is to find an open receiver and move the ball down the field. I don't give a damn if he's open, if Devontae Smith's open, if Julio Jones is open, or Dallas Goddard's open. The key, I understand that there's, that there's a certain concept that the play is designed for, you know, the X or the y, the the X or the Y or the zero receiver to get open. But if they're not open, isn't the key to get the ball to the open receiver? So you can, so they can rack up yardage, gain first down, so move the ball down the field? Isn't isn't that the objective? And he force feeder and he force fed him the ball all night. If not screen passes and quarterback keepers for Jalen Hurts, he was force-feeding the ball down A.J. Brown's throat all night long. And if you Seattle Seahawks defense, it makes it, easy for, it makes it easy for them. Because, like, okay, well, if they're throwing the ball, I know three. If they, if they line up ready to throw, I know three things are going to happen. Either Hurts is going to keep it for himself, they're going to run a screen pass, or they're going to force-feed the ball to A.J. Brown uh, down the field deep. One of those three things is going to happen. Either keep it with keep it with hurts, screens, or force feet deep ball to T.J. No wonder they only scored 17 points. And why in the world, C- uh, C- uh, excuse me, Philadelphia, why are they chucking it deep? Here it is, they got a field goal kicker who's got a Justin Tucker-esque range in Jake Elliott. Who hit a game time field goal in the rain and the wind on Thanksgiving weekend to force overtime against Buffalo? And here it is when they have uh, the when I, at this time they had already used one at timeout, so they had two. They had two timeouts with about 15 or so seconds left in the game, and and they're about what they had bought their own what 45. I can check the play by play sheet here in a minute. They had the ball first, they had the ball first and ten at their own forty-five yard line with thirteen seconds left and two timeouts. A a good ten a good what? 20, 25 yard gain in 13 seconds, you're in you're in his you're in Elliott field goal range. And what does Hurst decide to do? Force see the ball downfield down the near sideline to AJ Brown. That gets that gets picked off by Julian Love to put the to put to end the game and put the game on ice. Why? You're down three. A tie, a, a game tying field goal, a field goal extends the game. That's your goal. When you're down three, especially on the road with less than twenty seconds to go on regulation, your goal is to extend the game. If they give you an avenue to win the game, you obviously take it. But your first instinct in that situation, if you're Jalen Hurts or anybody else, is our goal is to extend this game. And he threw a deep pass down the near sideline to AJ Brown, and he gets picked off. Now, should there and could there have been pass interference called? I'd believe so because it was like the other because it was his loved teammate that came out there and like was defending AJ Brown and kind of. Sh- politely shoved them out of the way to allow Julian Love to make a play on the ball. Now, obviously, I'm not going to gripe because I can't stand it when games end with flags, and they obviously could have been called. They chose not to. I'm not going to scream. But the bottom line is, why is the, why is hurt? Why is that play call even on the mind of Brian Johnson to begin with? And second, why is make, trying to make enforce feed? That throw, if you're Jalen Hurts, even in the realm of possibilities, if he's not wide open on that on that on that deep in Seattle territory, that's the only time that ball needs to be thrown, unless he's wide open in Seattle territory where where he's ten to fifteen to twenty to twenty five yards behind his receiver. That's the only time that pass play need, needs to occur. Not double not double covered. No. When Brian hadn't had a great game for the previous three quarters, receiving to begin with, anyway. Jalen hurt and Jalen Hurts worries me, man. He were he's worries me. I don't know whether it's the fact that he's having to play this entire season injured. I don't know what I don't know what it is with him, but it- I-, I don't want to jump to the conclusion that he's regressed. But he sure as hell hasn't progressed with his play. I mean, seventeen of thirty-one are buck forty-three passing and two interceptions to a defense that surrendered that surrendered uh, that surrendered twenty-eight points to San Francisco the week before, forty-one points to Dallas, and thirty-one points to San Francisco on Thanksgiving night. I mean that that's that that's unacceptable. For a team that's supposedly supposed to be better than Seattle is. And now they've hit the wall, three-game winning streak, and it and it can't and it can't win a damn thing. And I think, in my humble opinion, it falls on their coaching staff. This Eagles coaching staff is 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 awful. And and we talk about it all the time with various sports and various teams the key of a coaching staff if anything else, if not anything else it's supposed to give the team that they coach the best chance to win their goal and their intent is to set up their football team or their basketball team or if it's a manager in baseball their baseball team their goal and their objective is to set their team and to put them to get, put them in a position that gives them the best chance to win if all else that's their lone soul Job description: Give my team the best chance to win. And repeatedly, time after time, if time this season, we see that the Philadelphia Eagles coaching staff does not put the Eagles in, in the in the best scenario for them to win football games. We don't see it. We don't see it with the play calling. We don't see it with the defensive scheming. We don't. We don't see it with. Um, we don't see it with. With, with 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 their energy during these games, they come out f- outside. Of, I mean, they had some energy to to start the game with the opening drive. But you go to the Dallas game, you go to the San Francisco game, you see these games where they're flat. Even the Philly, even the Philly, even the Buffalo game they won an overtime a handful of weeks back. We see it. This team come, start comes out the gate flat, lethargic devoid of a pulse with no energy, no life, nothing. Nothing. And it's a reflection of the head coach. If all else, the coach has got to make sure that his team comes out the locker room swinging, flying and and and, and, come, and comes out the gate ready ready to play football. Not this meek, mellow, sah attitude that the Philadelphia Philadelphia Eagles have been playing with for the better part of the last damn near two months. And I said it last week, I say it again. I love Jalen Hurts. Hell of a hell of a guy and a damn good football player who's who's gonna become something in this league. Deserve to get paid the money that Philadelphia gave him in the offseason. But I gotta, call, I gotta call it the way he sees it. I and I understand he said, you know, among other things, to the media after the game that he didn't feel like the team was uh, was, uh, was 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 um, <clears throat> prepared. But the bottom line is, if the, now it shouldn't have to be on his plate because the coaches should provide that, and it all shouldn't be, and it all doesn't, and nor should have to be on the plate and shoulders of Jalen Hurts, but. The Gary Cooper, to quote Tony Soprano, the Gary Cooper, strong and si- strong and si- and silent type archetype for a franchise quarterback that works, and that's only nice if you have either the coaching staff that that gives the team that 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 fire under their ass in order for them to to dominate and win on week in week out basis. The coach has to provide that. The head coach, starting from the top, working all it's all the way down. Or there are, or there has to be a player on that roster that has to fill that void. I don't know whether it's the fact, Jason, the long, the the long timers that go back to the seventeen championship and Brandon Graham and Kelsey. I don't know whether it's like. They're not vocal enough as they should be, and maybe it's maybe it's something that they have to do as veteran leaders on that team to be more of a uh, to be more of that foot in the caucus especially for the younger players on that football team, whether it falls on Brandon Graham and Kelsey being the elder statesman of that football team who's won a championship hurts. I understand. I don't want him to be something that is not going to come across as inauthentic, but you see where the the strong and silent type with 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 that immature fool of a head coach is getting you. It ain't getting you very far. And you basically having to, with apologizing without apologizing for him and his team's performance after these games, a I can imagine it's getting old, and b it's only going to be so much for a matter of time before it before it breaks Jalen Hurts because I can tell by his body language he's not too high on um on his OC, and Lord only knows what he thinks about his head coach. But even but even before you get all of that leadership stuff with, with, uh, with Hertz, he has 17 turnovers this season. That's more turnovers than he had the previous two years of his NFL career, 2021 and 2022 combined. He's got 17 and he's still got what? Three games left? Can't happen. Cannot happen. Jackson, Smith, and Jigba—only rookie since 1960—with two game-winning touchdown receptions in the final minute of fourth quarter. Also had the game-winning one against Cleveland in Week Seven. And get this—going back to my original uh, theme—to get us started with the Monday Night Football with the uh, with the high quality of games. How about this? The underdogs are seven and zero over the last six weeks uh, in on Monday Night Fo- in Monday Night Football games. In which the underdogs were, in which the, with the two underdogs winning in week fourteen, they're seven and zero in the last six weeks of Monday Night Football. That's the longest winning streak of underdogs in Monday Night Football history, which I found to be interesting as well. Uh, and see, and how about this, Drew Lock, last quarterback to lead his team down the field with less than two minutes to go, down by four. And to carve up a 90-yard game-winning touchdown drive, the last guy to do it, Brett Favre, back in 1992. Spend an hour on one game, <laughs> would just, just go to show you how busy we're going to be here on this show on this Tuesday. But a lot of things to digest. But um, we shall keep things moving uh, as we continue here on the show today. How about my Cincinnati Bengals, man? They I, that was a thrilling, exciting, nerve-wracking, stress-inducing but unforgettable game that my Bengals had on Saturday afternoon. Uh you want to talk about a team that was just sleepwalking for 3 quarters and then woke up in the fourth and didn't look back, man. They 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 were absolutely sensational in the fourth quarter. They were down seventeen to three, down fourteen points, no problem. Jake Browning did not play his best game, but was damn good at the end of it. Twenty nine to forty two through for three twenty four two touchdown passes. Did get sacked four times. Give all the credit in the world to the Vikings defensive, to the Vikings defensive unit and Brian Flores that had Jake Browning and. And 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 Zach Taylor and Callahan searching for answers throughout that game. It just had, I mean, they they couldn't they couldn't. After I mean, they move. would move the ball down the field effectively in their opening drive. Subtle field fill because again, Zach Taylor getting too cute with the trick plays. Again, uh, too cute with his offensive play calling in the fourth. In the excuse me, on the third and on the third and one. They had to settle for a field goal. They do nothing the rest. Of, they do nothing the rest of the way offensively. You look at Cincinnati after they had that field goal. They had they went three plays, eight yards punt. Five plays, five yards punt. Six plays, thirteen yards punt. Three plays six yards and then they went into the halftime and then they went into the halftime locker room. Then after Minnesota goes down and uh after Minnesota goes down and scores a touchdown to make it 14-3, Cincinnati they get the ball at their first and on their own 25 yard line. Second and seven, fast forward, they're driving at their own 40-yard line. Jake Browning throws in inter- throws in an interception. Uh, throws the interception at fourteen three early third quarter, and I said, you know what? Uh, it's it's just just it's just not going to happen for us today, guys. It's just not going to happen. You can't move the ball downfield worth an inch for some inexplicable reasons. Zach Taylor once again was hell bent with his with his awful dopey game plans, where it's like I mean, the, does the guy watch and pay attention to trends with his own play calling and pay attention to the trends? with his team's offense and I and I said this is why Zach Taylor is the most he may not be the best coach in the NFL and he's not the worst but I tell you one thing he is that 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 you can't dispute. He is the most frustrating coach most frustrating head coach if not slash offensive play caller in the NFL. He is so freaking frustrating with his play calling and his tendencies offensively it's like you watch him coach the Jacksonville game the game against Indianapolis and it's like okay he, he, he even uh even when Burrow was healthy the 40, the 49er game The uh the cardinal game you watch those games and it's like okay Zach I can get down with this you you being you're being creative you're running the football you you're you're not being so predictable in terms of the in terms of your uh your uh your 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 play calling with in the passing game I like this you know keep it moving you know he, he he calls a good game. Works to perfection. We score twenty-eight plus points. We win the game more likely than not by by two possessions at minimum. You say okay, carry it in week to week. Next week he does it next. Okay, oh good, good. You're doing okay, fine. This is how. And then once you get to that, this is what it has to be from here on out. They have a first half, or really a first three quarters, like they did on Saturday afternoon, where they're not running the football. Here it is Joe Mixon. I mean, he who's had a solid. Uh, last uh last two games and who has gotten better as the season's worn on for since this season Against a Viking defensive line that had their number against the against the uh, the Bengals' O line, thought the sequence of the afternoon all things equal, but it's still a tightly contested football game. The defense has done a good job keeping Cincinnati game, and here it is, Joe Mixon. Who, you know, again, I can When you play in an overtime, and I can count on two hands how many times you run the football uh, with with Joe Mixon, and then if you want to throw in Chase Brown, only so to. Seventeen times compared to 42, it's like I sound it's like I'm having deja vu. I sound like a broken record every single time I say it, but I'll say it again. You make yourself one-dimensional offensively and easy to beat when you're not keeping a defense honest and you're not being creative and unique in terms of your variation of mixing up the run and the pass. You become a very one-dimensional, one-dimensional beatable offense. And all due respect to Jake Browning, you're ha- you have problems winning that way when Burrows behind center and he's healthy. What well, makes you sure think you can have you that you can expect to win football games like that on a consistent basis with a backup quarterback? Second half, they get to run the football a little bit more. Joe Mixon. Scored the touchdown that that the Bengals had to have on fourth and goal. Tremendous effort by him. Tremendous uh, running by him throughout that enti- throughout that entire drive. Give him all give him all the credit in the world. That touchdown that he had um, in the in the second touchdown that they had, which came with uh, 7, oh, 7.49 to go in the in the third in the uh, fourth quarter. Down, uh, down fourteen to, uh, excuse me, down seventeen ten. They had to have that. Obviously, I like the move by Zach to go for it on fourth and goal. You want to play for the tie and not pussyfoot around, kick the field goal that go down by four. Charge the defense, get a stop. Blah blah blah. No fourth and goal. You're down there. You need a, you need to keep the the momentum going of the T Higgins touchdown. I finally got you on the board early in the fourth quarter after a Minnesota punt. Keep that on momentum going. Hopefully, you know, keep it going to the point where it builds and it snowballs and it's an avalanche effect, and it and it uh, ruins and tanks morale of Minnesota. So you go for it. So I like the decision. I like the Blake on. I get too cute. Just get the ball to Mixon, up the gut. There he goes for a touchdown. But to begin the game, man, I don't understand. Give the ball to Joe Mixon. Give the ball to Chase Brown especially if the if the opposing defensive front is, te- is teeing off on your quarterback, especially early, or at least is making it known that they're going to try to get the quarterback all game long, run the football and take the pressure off of them. Run out of just, I, I don't, I swear to you guys, I don't get it. I don't get it, and then it's like fourth quarter comes around. Like, okay, game's still relatively tight. We got to run the football just to wear down their defense and keep their offense on the field, which had their moments of chunk plays and racked and racked up some yards against Cincinnati. They racked up as a team 424 yards the total offense. Minnesota did. So they go, okay, let's run the football. That's gotta be the that's gotta be the point of emphasis right from the get go. If it's if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And what do they do? They abandon the run. They fought around. They get cute. They find themselves in a 14-point hole at home. But to their credit and to Zach Taylor's credit, they I don't know where this, how this team does it. I don't know what the secret formula. I don't know. But somehow, someway, when the Bengals' backs are against the wall and it's a game that they have to have, they find a way to buckle down, dig deep, uh, you know, f- find that, find that, inner layer of, of 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 mental toughness that lies inside and they find a way to come back, to tie the game, and to win the game. A game that they that that at least to start they had no business being in, let alone winning. And they find a way to to come back to make these games interesting. To take the heart while ripping the heart and soul out of their opponents, and they find a way to come back in the tie and win these games. I don't know what his secret formula is. What 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 he does specifically that varies from other. I don't know what it is. But it's like whenever the Bengals have their backs up against the wall in a game that they have to have, where they know there's hell to pay, and and the shit's gonna hit the fan if we somehow fi- if we somehow don't get our act together and lose this game. More likely than not, eight nine times out of ten, they turn it around, they fix whatever needs to get fixed, and they find a way to win. I don't know how they do it. I don't know why it's all. It's more. It's the more. Uh, Taggable trait with this football team, but it's it's who they are. It's who they are. And you can say, is this a really great football team, really good if this team makes a plus? Are they a Super contender? I can leave it to you to decipher and to have the conversations of how good this Bengals team really is, but I think one thing that can't be denied and can't be debated is that this team... Is mentally tough. And it was, again, it was amplified, especially on Saturday, because obviously you have no Joe Burrow out there. And it's not like, okay, it's Joe Burrow that's mentally tough and everybody else follows you. No, no, no. This football team from the head coach all the way down 1 through 53 is a scrappy, mentally tough football team. They annoy you. They frustrate the hell out of you. They have their moments where they play like crap, where it's like you look at the team like, this team isn't a championship football-contending team. Who the hell are you kidding? I mean, they have their games and they have their moments during a football game. But one thing that, I mean, one thing that you can't question, especially late in the season, September, October, a little dicey, but when the rubber meets the road late in the season from essentially the Thanksgiving holiday on, this team knows how to turn it on and to, and to go to that place that 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 makes up a championship football team and and I am harsh on him as you guys know and it's been known by a whole lot of people how tough I am on on Zach Taylor the head coach and rightfully so see the, see how this team played in the first three quarters and you' un- and it's play calling and dissected and you'll understand why. But and, and look at the and look at who our six losses have been to. Swept sweep by Baltimore, that's two, losing to Pittsburgh and Cleveland, that's four, and losing to Houston at home again that we never should've lost, and getting embarrassed on the road by Tennessee again that we never should've lost. And that's why I, I get I get incensed with Zach Taylor as often as I do. But you give this team an opportunity uh, late in the season when when they, when the games mean just a little bit more week by week the team right finds a way to rise to the occasion I don't it's something that can't be explained I know who to, who it, it whom it is in a, in a tribute to but I can't I can't explain it somehow some way this team finds a way to rise from the dead and to and and and, and, to, and to win football games I don't know how but they do they their defense gave a their defense 17-7, seven, and they hold them to and in the fourth quarter and the overtime they hold them to seven points, and they get out and and then the Minnesota gets outscored twenty four to seven. They did a sensational job in the overtime on the push push stopping them not once but twice in the O T did a sensational job. Now granted, they also it also uh, was due to the idiocy of um. Of uh, of Kevin O'Connell, how the hell he's running the tush push on back to back plays? I have absolutely no idea. And even worse, having a running back who's what? I think five eight, hundred and eighty pounds or thereabouts. Having a smaller little running back to push Mullins on the tush push, maybe it's more of a, it. Maybe as as egregious as running the tush push on back to back plays on third and fourth and short. I mean, when you're running back. Uh when you're running back Chandler who ran who is averaging five point seven yards a carry who ran the football down Cincinnati Stokes for hundred on for hundred and thirty-two yards on twenty-three carries and you're giving the ball to Kevin to uh, to to uh, Nick Mullins for the touch push on back to back play. I mean it's not Jalen Hurts, Kevin. Pay attention. My goodness gracious. I, I couldn't believe I couldn't believe I was like, really gonna run this again and then lo and behold Cincinnati stops him, barely gets back to the line of scrimmage. And it gives Cincinnati a short field with an opportunity to kick a, to to get to uh what well, to get within chip shot range from McPherson, kick the game winning field goal without breaking a sweat. But I that that I had no I I had no idea. And Nick Mullins he he played solid in the game. 26 of Twenty six or 26 or thirty three threw for three hundred and three pass yards, averaged nine point two yards per pass play. But what's going to kill him and what and what dampens his his performance is the three sacks that he took and the two interceptions, the one at the one at the goal line to Mike Hilton when they're driving. This is this is not the one with B.J. Hill where he threw it at his own. I get to that dumb play in a minute. This is the this is in the sec, This is their first possession of the second quarter. They're driving. It's third and nine at the at the Cincinnati fourteen yard line. They are up. Uh, they're up seven three. They're up seven three. He doesn't throw an interception. You, he doesn't, but he doesn't pick up the first down. You kick your field goal. Two possession game. You're up ten. You're up. You you are up. Excuse me. Uh, ten three. No, no, I apologize. You're up a touchdown. You're not up. It's not a two possession game. You're up a touchdown. And what does he do? Third and nine. Mike Hilton reading his eyes the whole way through. He gets intercepted at the goal line, to keep to keep it a, to keep it a four point game. And then after Cincinnati goes six plays, thirteen yards, and a punt, they get the ball back at their own thirty four yard line. They they get they gain six yards. Second and four. Fast forward to third and seven. They have the ball at Cincinnati's 22-yard line with 31 seconds left. So this is after they this is after a 20 a 35-yard uh, catch and run by, from Jordan Addison on second and four to get within Cincinnati's 25-yard line with 65 seconds to go before the half. And on a first and ten at Cincinnati's 25-yard line, Nick Mullins they get a they pick up the pass play to Jefferson to pick up nine yards, second and one. Then Mullins gets sacked. Lost of six on second and one. Then on third and seven, he gets hit, goes down. Looks like he's going to get sacked by BJ Hill. Still keeps uh Minnesota in field goal range, mind you, with the sack. Not the best thing that you want, but you're still in field goal range and you have an opportunity to go into the halftime. You have an opportunity to go into the halftime locker room, uh up 10-3, nevertheless, even after the goal interception. But what does Nick Mullins do on his way down? He throw tries to throw the ball away, which if had it which had it had any air underneath it, he would have gotten called for intentional grinding, which would have backed up Minnesota and would have given him a loss of down. On top of the fact that does he throw the ball? You know, you know, away where no Bengal player can touch it and get their hands on it. No, what does he do? He throws it into the face mask of B.J. Hill. It hits off his face mask. He bobbles it. He cradles it into his stomach, and he and he gets and he records one of the zaniest interceptions you'll ever see in NFL history. Those two interceptions, on top of the sacks that he took, were backbreakers by Minnesota. On two occasions, two occasions. The Vikings had an opportunity to walk, away, to walk away with points at bare minimum field goals, which would have been 16-7 Minnesota at bare minimum heading into the halftime locker room. And twice, third and seventh at our 22 and third and nine at the Cincinnati 14, Nick Mullins gets stupid with the football and, throw, and, and throws the football away, costing Minnesota two possessions. Which they absolutely could have needed late in the fourth quarter, and then how about T? And then how about T. Higgins? Higgins. He opens the scoring for Cincinnati. He catches on. Uh, he catches a the Bengals' first touchdown of the uh, first touchdown of the game at the end of the third quarter. Uh, or, or excuse me, early fourth quarter to close out the drive that began late in the third quarter. On a, on a touchdown catch uh, on the left hand side of the end zone on a first and 10 at the Minnesota 13 yard line to get pulled Cincinnati within a score at 17 10. Think, they have your touchdowns. It's what you put you throw in the second Viking touchdown plus two field goals. That's what you do them at. Seven plus six. That's 13 points. Minnesota could have won this game 31 17 or 27 17. And none of this wouldn't have happened, but because O'Connell wants to get cute calling for the tush push because he thinks his his quarterback is Jalen Hurts, and then of course Nick Mullins being stupid with the football, this is the results you get. T. Higgins gets the Bengals gets the Bengals on the board. Joe Mixon caps off a great drive on the Bengals second possession after the fact, after a uh, Minneapolis punt, to tie the game at seven, to tie the game at seventeen apiece. Then with uh, Minnesota gets out to a twenty four to gets out to a twenty four to seventy lead and this is not before the Bengals had an oppor- had an opportunity with um, had an opportunity with uh with two minutes to go on regulation or thereabouts. We had, a, had an opportunity to, to record a go ahead pick six on the part of Jermaine Pratt, who made an absolutely brilliant, brilliant play on the ball. Red Nick Mullins' eyes the whole way, comes out of nowhere to pick the ball off and heads into the end zone to give Cincinnati the lead, or so we thought, until Trey Hendrickson, and it was as close of an offside as you can ever, that you'll ever see in your life. I mean, he was literally a half a second. Premature to the to the snap of the football, and he gets and he gets flagged for offsides, takes the touchdown off the board. And what does Minnesota do? They find a way to march. They find a way to march down the field to go out and to go out in front twenty four set to go out in front twenty four seventeen. And I thought, oh, here we go. Starter breaks the Campbell's back, and Jake Browning, to his credit, they say no, we're scoring touchdowns. We're scoring touchdowns on three three consecutive possessions. And he marches down the field, 10 plays, 75 yards, and finds T. Higgins, who who makes better than that Asinine Ola Beckham Jr. catch. I mean, that is one of the clutch, most premier touchdown catches and catches, period, that you'll ever see in a National Football League. His ability to jump, to time his jump, high point the football, catch the ball, get his feet in bounds while remaining body control inbounds long enough to allow himself to reach over behind his back to break the plane and to break the pylon to get the ball into the end zone to score a touchdown. I mean, that was, that was high-level football IQ and high-level athleticism all in one sole play. And when I saw it, I'm watching it live. I'm on pins and needles during the Bengals' final, uh, during the Bengals' final offensive drive. Uh, I can barely. I have my hood on. I can. I have a uh empty space on my hoodie with it over my head. Space open, just big enough where I can where I can see the TV. I'm that nervous. I I don't want to watch. "Quote unquote," I don't. I you know, as one. I'm so nervous. I can't one of those. So I'm so nervous. I can't watch type scenes you see in television. I was so nervous I could hardly watch. My heart rate's going through the roof. I'm like, come on, Browning. Because if it's Burrow, it's one thing. You got you know, you had the film Burrell, but you know, Browning. I I mean, I understand obviously the overtime game against Jacksonville, but I mean, who in hell thought they're gonna win that game to begin with? This was a game that Cincinnati was favored in against seven and six. Vikings team, and you're at home, you figure, okay, he's got to find a way to get the job done, to get the ball in the end zone here, no interceptions, Got you, you, you got to be able to get a touchdown or we lose this game, and he finds a way, he scrambled, like I said, Minnesota's been on his ass like white on rice all game, all afternoon long. He scrambles out of the pocket to his right, and off his back foot, he finds T. Higgins, and boy, you want to talk about the majestic wonders of high end town. He lets the ball go off his back foot. There's T. Higgins.
2: Here I come to save the day.
1: That means that T. Higgins on the way jumps up, catches the ball, reaches over behind his back, breaks the plan, ties the game. I st- I'm i like, and I'm like in a state of utter shock. I don't know what the hell to do with myself. I, w- I, I stand up. I see it. I see him catch the ball. I'm like, oh. And I see him reach over, and I'm like, and I want to celebrate, but I need to see the ref's arms go up to, so I don't, you know, get caught for premature celebration like I did with the Brett play early in the fourth quarter. Ref's hands extend through the heavens, touchdown. I remember, I, I scream, I yell, I run out of the room, and I like run to the wall. It was, it was like I was a video game glitch, you know, where if like if you're playing like a baseball, if you're playing. Uh, you know, 2K or, or MLB The Show and your player will, you know, he'll just run and he'll like run into the wall or run into like some stationary object and he like he'll just he, he won't move past where the stationary object is, is sitting on the floor or standing or sitting on the on the, you know, on the on 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 the floor area. That's what that's what it was like. I, I got up I I ran I cheered I yelled and screamed ran out the room ran towards the wall kind of froze for like 2 seconds and then ran back in the room and just lied out on the fo- lied out on the floor on my back you know in a huge sigh of release exhale like huh the game is tied can you uh, can you believe this can you imagine that and they tie the game up at twenty, and then they tied the game up at four at twenty-four. The Bengals get absolutely screwed on the, on the pass interference penalty that should have been called and didn't. Fort uh, Vikings get the ball, ball don't lie, they do nothing with it, throwing Kevin O'Connell's idiocy with the back-to-back calls with the touch push. Bengals get the ball. And uh, with the sh- with a relatively short field, they find T. Higgins, who's able to flip the field a few plays later, Evan McPherson game win a field goal. Bengals win twenty-seven-24. And one of the most thrilling, exciting football games, at least for the Bengals season, that you'll ever see. And certainly, I mean, it was this game, it was this game, th- it was this game, the Texans game. And the game last night, one, two, three, without even giving it a second thought, were your best games of week fifteen, without a shadow of a doubt. Th- Saturday Saturday afternoon, Monday night, and the overtime game in Nashville. Without a shadow of a doubt, three best games of week fifteen. I mean, that was an in- that was a thrilling, thrilling, compelling football game. And it's like the second one in three weeks for the Bengals. Honestly, second one in three weeks, and if you want to include the game against Tennessee, that's a fu- that's a fourth game that they've had this season that's been like that. The Seattle game, they win 17-3 with the defensive stop in the red zone, make it a fifth one. Uh, is there is there, an, is there another? I mean, eh, yeah, I mean, really five of them. the the Seahawk the Seahawk game. The Texan game and the Jaguars and now the Vikings game. They've played 13 games and five of them have been edge of your seat, heart palpitating, riveting finishes. And football games really from start to finish. But um, my Bengals man, they they somehow someway are able to find a way. You give Zach Taylor credit and I am rough and I am harsh on him, infamously as you all know, but He's got, and that's and that's one of the reasons why I get so frustrated and get so annoyed with him is because I know I see and I know the potential and the potential and the, and I, what I see with my own eyes is like this guy can win us a Super Bowl if he gets us back in that if he gets us back there again. But the thing that kills me is his decision making along the way that is going to prohibit us from getting back to another Super Bowl. He's as frustrating of a head coach and an offensive play caller as you'll find in the NFL. Has tremendous promise and tremendous upside, but he makes those mistakes and calls those plays and calls it drive during a game or two or three where it's like, Zach, what the hell are you doing? He has those moments, but he got his team, got off the deck and was able to find a way to win. At the end of the day, when you got Pittsburgh coming up on Saturday before Christmas, that's all you can ask for. But my Bengals get the job done over the Minnesota Vikings. In terms of the rest of the games, week 15, how about the Detroit Lions, man? The Detroit Lions found a way to bounce back in a game that they absolutely had to have. I was disappointed. That the game wasn't more competitive that, than it was. Uh, the the Denver Broncos decided not to show up. I mean, if you're a Denver Broncos, y'all be ashamed of yourself. If I have to, if I'm to the point where the game is that bad, where I got to travel surf or travel surf, channel surf, and find and trying to find something to watch, and I get caught up on um on finding. The Wolf of Wall Street on Paramount Network. We we got problems. We got big problems, and that's where I was for the majority of the fourth for the majority of the fourth quarter. While Detroit's running away and hiding, uh, I'm going back and forth, uh, looking uh, looking at uh, Wolf of Wall Street and what a hysterical movie that is on all accounts. And I just say to myself, man. Why wasn't I born 10 years earlier? Why? Why? Why wasn't I born 10 years earlier and about eh, roughly $50 million richer? Because if I was born 10 years earlier and had $50 million more in my bank account, man. Let me tell you something. Margot Robbie. My God. God, what a woman anyway, getting off the beaten path, she is just i mean it's just absolutely tremendous I mean you can't you can't find a more beautiful woman in Hollywood right now in two thousand and twenty three than Margot Robbie she is just an absolute angel she is absolutely just oh, incredible, my Lord, have mercy anyway. That's where I. that's where I had to go. Uh during the while Denver's getting their teeth smashed in sideways and uh Sean Payton screaming and yelling his head off the Russell Wilson on the sideline. That's where I was the majority of the fourth quarter. Um but so let me delve into this. Uh let me do uh Detroit first. Offense did a good job. They got back on track. Jared Goff was 24-34, threw for 278, five touchdown passes. Jameer Gibbs, what a night. 11 carries for 100 yards, ran for a touchdown. Amaran St. Brown, seven receptions, a buck 12, caught a touchdown pass. The, the Lions as a team uh, collected 448 yards of total offense. Perfect in the red zone, six for six. Only the two penalties scored six touchdowns. Really not a lot outside the fact they were five or ten on third down, which I mean that's nitpicking, but they were solid offensively throughout uh, solid offensively throughout the night despite being held scoreless after the first quarter, scored twenty-four points in the second quarter, and walked into the halftime locker room with a commanding twenty-one to 21 to nothing lead. And give the Lions defense credit to I said heading into this game that one of the keys to victory for uh, Detroit was their ability to get after Russell Wilson, especially uh, Aiden Hutchinson, their star pass rusher from Michigan. And the key to this game was getting after Russell Wilson, get him off his spot, have him rush his throws, rush through his progressions. You know, get it in his head to where he has to make every throw every single time he drops back to pass because he has such little time to deliver and get rid of the football. And that's the Detroit Lions' defensive pass rush did. They were able we to get Russell Wilson off his horse, no pun intended. We were able to have him scramble. We couldn't get his uh, feet set on a lot on a lot of his throws. Had a, a substandard night. 18 of 32, 223. Got sacked twice. Was hurried. A, was hurried a ton. Uh, and and they did a good job of getting pressure to Russell Wilson and having him uncomfortable behind behind uh, his o line uh, all night long for four quarters. Give the Lions tremendous their defense tremendous credit for that. Uh, they held Denver only five for thirteen on third downs. Collected only 287 yards of total uh, yards of total offense. Averaged 4.6 yards per play. Uh they only ran the football for eighty three yards on twenty-eight uh on twenty eight rushes uh for the night, averaging three yards a carry. Um they had they also uh, forced forced uh, forced the turnover with uh with Russ and that being and that being the fumble that he lost on that being the fumble that they lost, the Detroit Lions defense did a nice job bouncing back. Uh, held Williams who's had a solid who had a solid uh, month and a half, held him in check. 12 carries, 27 yards, averaging 2.2 yards a carry. Uh, held Jerry Judy and Cortland Sutton checking the receiving game. The Detroit Lions defense did a sensational job. In terms of the Denver Broncos, some takeaways with them. Um, they didn't, like I said, they didn't run the football. Well, wasn't, wasn't good on third down. Russell Wilson playing hero ball also helped them too. trying to make every single big play and every single throw on every single, uh, down, uh, did more harm than good. Uh, and a thing I want to, if there's one thing I can quote unquote screw about from this game is this. Uh, the, the the off-sides penalty that I didn't see, I mean, on the right guard, they said what it was. I looked at that play about a, a, a half a dozen times, and I still can't see where the offensive off-sides penalty uh, was on that play. How in the world Sean Payton, not once but twice on back-to-back plays, uh, and I believe this was in the third quarter because uh, it was, this was in the third quarter. With uh, this was the third quarter, with uh, on uh, th- on second and goal, and then third and goal. How in the world, Sean Payton on back to back plays does not challenge, uh, which would have been at least it looked like to me. Off the rip at first replay, at first glance, looked like two would have been should have been overturned touchdowns. How Sean Payton decides not to challenge the two of them. Not one but two of them on back to back plays and then he opts to kick a field goal down twenty-eight seven. I mean, Sean, who's a Super Bowl winning head coach, I understand all that. But Sean, you have to explain to me you have to explain to me the logic and the smarts in kicking a field goal down twenty eight seven. You need touchdowns. To that point, all Detroit has scored in the game were touchdowns. 28-7, you score a touchdown, it's 28-14, it's a two-score game. You're down 14 points. You kick a field goal, not great, but you're down 17. You're down 17, and they get the ball back, you just never know. You're down 14, either they you they muff the kick, they muff the kickoff return, they have a bad snap, you just don't know. A play here, a play there, you're within seven, just like that without batting an eye. But instead down 28-7, he decides to kick a field goal on fourth and goal at at Detroit's own 1-yard line late in the fourth quarter. Now please explain to me what 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 exactly does that accomplish? You kick a field goal, it's still a 3-point game. Or excuse me, a 3-score game. Get down 18 points. If Detroit, and they ended up scoring a touchdown instead of a field goal, which makes it worse, but if Detroit would have been helped to a field goal in their ensuing possession, it's still a three point game because you're down 18 points. And when Denver's defense has been awful all night long, you kind of have to game plan offensively, offensively when it comes to making decisions like that, presuming upon your defense not being able to get a stop. So you have to say, huh, what's better? thirty? What's better, 31-10 or 31-14 or 28-14? He kicks the field goal down 28-7 to make it 28-10, down 18 points, still a three-score game. Detroit, if they kick a field goal in that situation, it's 31-10. Their defense is garbage. They go down the field, score a touchdown, and swing drive makes it 35-10. for the hypothetical situation, if Denver would have been able to get a stop, you kick a field goal again last time, it's still a three-score game. If Denver keeps Detroit out of the end zone and surrender a field goal, it's a 21-point deficit all over again. You're marching down the field, down 21. You kick a field goal, Detroit at bare minimum goes down a field, kicks a field goal on their own. It's like you made no progress. If anything, you work to Detroit's advantage because you chewed up clock. You kick a field goal down twenty eight seven to make it twenty-eight ten, and then and then Detroit hypothetically goes down the field at bare minimum kicks a field goal, you're down twenty one points all over again. You might as well not even bother to kick the field goal. Awful, awful sequence by Sean Payton. He's not paying attention. He doesn't challenge the two touchdowns. At least one of them, I would have thought and think, and I still do, that he if had he challenged one, if not both of them, he would have won them both. And then he turns around, down 28-7 late in the third quarter, fourth to go at the one-yard line, he kicks a field goal. And then, he's, and then, he, has to, and then he has the chutzpah to go chew out Russ Wilson on the sidelines. And Russ Wilson was Awful in the game. Don't get me wrong. He had a he had a bad game, bad night. I get it. I understand it. He's not off the look for why Denver lost. But if you're but if you're Sean Payton, you, you can't chew out Russell Wilson like he's your 12-year-old son when your team got punched in the face all game long, and then you had an opportunity to at least, at least give your give your give your fan base and at least put it into the ether of there being a fraction of a chance for you guys to come back and at least get back in the game to make, to bring it within a touchdown. You made a cowardly decision to kick a field goal. Field goals. Do you no good down 28 seven in the second half. They do you no favors. I'm all for taking the points and this, that, and the third. Yeah, you take the points when you're you take the points when you're down 17 10. 17 10, you take the points, you pull within four. More likely than not, 65% of the time, depending on the situation, you kick the field, you take the points. But if you're down 28 7 and you and your opposition scored nothing but touchdowns, field goals aren't going to help you win the football game unless it literally wins the football game down a point or two or the game is tied at the end. And I don't need Sean Payton after the game, you know, getting all hussy and fussy with, with, with the media after the game when he gets asked and he gets questioned on why he he was caught on, on primetime national television chewing out Russell Wilson on the sidelines. And he wants to play coy and wants to play, you know, hard to get and, want, and wants to play Mr. Billy Badass in the media after the game when everyone and their mother saw him cuss out Russell Wilson like he was some rookie off the practice squad. Was it Russell Wilson's fault you chose not to challenge? I I understand the whole game. I'm talking about in the vacuum of that specific drive at the end. Was it Russell Wilson's fault that you that you weren't didn't have the well thought to challenge those two touchdowns that probably, most likely, would have been overturned? No. Is it Russell Wilson's fault you chose to kick a field goal down 28-7? No. Is it Russell Wilson's fault you guys got hold with an asinine uh, size penalty on the right guard? No. Take it down a notch, Sean. Taking a, I understand you won a Super Bowl and you come from a Parcells hard, you know, hard nose, uh tough tough-as-nails coaching tree, but simmer down. Simmer down. Denver falls a 7-7. Seven seven. Ass-kicking 42-17. Move things along with Sunday's action. Browns with a massive comeback over the Denver Broncos, or excuse me, over the Chicago Bears at home on Sunday. Joe Flacco, who had a rough start to the game, bounced back and had a solid second half of his own. Brown scored 13 points they were down 17-7 heading into the fourth quarter. And they are able to find a way to score 13 unanswered points against Chicago in the fourth quarter. And they find a way to win the game 2017. Flacco, 28 of 44 through for 274 passing yards, two touchdowns, three interceptions. Got sacked four times, but was able to stand in there and make the necessary throws in the fourth quarter. Amari Cooper had a big game, four receptions, 109 receiving yards. Caught a touchdown pass. Uh, David Njoku. Uh, had another big-time game. He is starting to become slowly, but surely in these last two starts for Joe Flacco, his favorite number one ideal target, 10 receptions for 104 receiving yards and caught a touchdown pass for he as the Cleveland Browns' final way to get a job done. They're 9-5, and five, still not mathematically out of one winning the division yet because they beat Baltimore. Back in November, they're 9-5 and five in a comfortable situation as the fifth seed in the AFC playoff picture. Give, listen, give Kevins the fancy we touched on last week, say it again. Give him tremendous credit for getting this team to believe in themselves, believe in each other and their own ability. And Joe Flacco, man, he maybe not what he used to be, but I but I tell you this, I tell you this. He he's got his team. He's got his team believing that they can win any game and every game they play, and they feel like that they are not out of it under any circumstances. And they, Flacco, man, tough, gritty player as he's been throughout the large chunk of his career. They didn't run the football tremendously well, but he was able to bail them out, and they did a good job in doing so, especially uh, late, especially late in the second half. And if you're the Chicago Bears. You had a 17-7 to 7 lead heading into the fourth quarter with 15 minutes to play, and you collapsed. That's all there is to it. Downright absolutely collapsed. Story of the 2023 Chicago Bears. But uh, give Cleveland all the credit in the world. They are 9-5. and five. They have on their schedule coming up their last three games. They got the Texans on the road on Christmas Eve, and then they host the Jets and are at Cincinnati. They're currently sitting at 9-5. and five. They could. Now, the Jets game is going to be a pain in the ass because the Jets have a damn good defense, and Flacco uh, was on the Jets not too long ago, so that game is going to be a hard game for them to win. That, that, I believe, is a Thursday night game, if I'm not mistaken, towards the end of this month. But they have an opportunity, Cleveland, to win twelve games. If you told me Cleveland was fin- was able to find a way to win out and win twelve games, and, uh, and 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 get and get the fifth seed, I mean, get the fifth seed, obviously, wouldn't surprise me. But get the get the twelfth wins and make the Ravens sweat to win their division, I I wouldn't put it past them. They they too mentally tough football team, mentally tough them at, them and Cincinnati. I give them, a, I give them, a, I give them a ton of credit. Their coaches are not, are not great, Stefanski and Zach Taylor, but they are, they, they, they got mentally tough squads, mentally tough squads. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's the Ohio thing. I don't know, but the, the, those two, you gotta fight and gotta play well for all sixty minutes to put the stake through these teams. They may, and two teams and it's funny because I'm saying about two teams that even if they, and the if is in Cincinnati's case, they want they'll make the they may not win a Super Bowl, but they, both of the teams they may if Cincinnati's fortunate enough to make it, they won't win the Super Bowl and the Cleveland's going to make it, they won't win the Super Bowl. I wouldn't think, I wouldn't suspect it. It'd be hilarious if they did, especially with Joe Flacco at quarterback, but. It's funny they said about complementing these two teams, Cincinnati and Cleveland, their mental toughness, and they're not even at the, and they're not the top of anybody's list to win the Super Bowl. It's weird, weird. But but I would but I would say this though, I'd say this to any team that might play them in the postseason, don't take them lightly. Do not take them lightly. You gotta play them tough and hard for a full sixty minutes, because if you don't, you will go home with the L. And there's not a lot of teams, and we'll get to the Cowboys in a minute. The Cowboys are not are not a mentally tough football team. They're not. They're not. Now, they, and they may have a higher ceiling. Then Cincinnati and Cleveland, but they're not a mentally tough football team. They're not. They're not. Which, and if Cleveland was ever to, if the injury bug would stop biting them in the ass, and if Cincinnati, you know, if they have everyone gets back healthy and they bring back the appropriate free agents free agency next year, they they they, they could be a, They they are could be Super Bowl contenders. Straight up. Cleveland, I think, can get back to being that after kind of lying in the weeds for about a season or two, but they can get back to where they were in 2020. You could say Cleveland Browns and Super Bowl in the same sentence and not get get laughed off the face of the earth. But Browns with a comeback victory over the Chicago Bears. How about uh, Baker Mayfield and the day that he had in Cleveland? Uh, or in Cleveland and Green Bay, Wisconsin. Uh, Baker Day in Green Bay. Have a day, Baker in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Thirty-four twenty. Baker Mayfield, sensational day. Six incomplete passes all afternoon. Twenty-two of twenty-eight through for three hundred eighty-one passing yards. Four touchdown passes. No interceptions. Got sacked five times, but stood in there and made and made the throws. And I saw a stat during the game too. Of how Tampa Bay has a sub five hundred record when Bacon Mayfield is sacked more than more than twice and he gets sacked a whole a whole five times doesn't turn, doesn't turn over the football uh, and and throws for five touch or excuse me he will done throwing he fumbled he had a he fumbled the football I spoke premature I spoke prematurely not looking at my uh, at my note sheet here but. Got sacked five times, did not throw an interception, threw for 381 passing yards, six incompletions only, and threw for four touchdown passes. It's funny how it's funny how the game of football works, man, I tell you. But they were, he had a tremendous game, all the props on the road to him. Uh, Mr. Uh, Rashad White, 21 carries, 89 yards on the ground, had a solid day running the football. And how about Chris Godwin, man? And the Buccaneers, and that's why, and I believe I picked, let me see, I now I did pick Tampa uh, to finish last place, if I'm not mistaken, in their division. But on the Wednesday Night Tailgate show, uh, by the way, uh, check out for the, uh, the latest show. For that, we will st- stream the show live, I believe, at around 8.30 or thereabouts. Coming up on Wednesday night, me, uh, Anthony Zavala, and uh Mr. Uh, Craig the Crapper for a conversation to recap week fifteen and look ahead to week sixteen of the National Football League coming up uh, coming up on Wednesday night. But uh we had a little, you know, uh mid season, you know, playoff predictions, if we if you will, back in November of uh, the team, you know, that you think's gonna that's gonna be seated one through seven, and who's gonna win a division and who's gonna win the wild card this and third. My team that I picked to win the NFC South was the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. One of the reasons why they still have a crap ton of talent from their Super Bowl championship team and Chris Godwin being being one of many. 10 receptions, 155 receiving yards, uh, Mike Evans and uh, David Moore caught a touchdown pass—the pass that Baker Mayfield threw to Mike Evans in the back of the end zone, threading the needle uh, a la Brett Favre—was an absolute. The pass play that was just an absolute thing of beauty on Baker Mayfield's part. I mean, they, they had a they had an excellent offensive day. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers had given them all the credit in the world. In terms of the Green Bay Packers, listen. Uh, I think offensively, you know, for a perfect example, they had two back-to-back delayed game penalties. They had not back-to-back, but two delayed game penalties and and a three-four play sequence which killed them. They had a third and six, moved to a third eleven. They got a five-yard gain, fourth and six. And then they had a delay game penalty again to to force him back to a fourth and eleven. This is what the game tied at ten ten with three fifty-three to go in the second quarter. Had the ball at Tampa Bay's forty-nine yard line. They had a punt, and it led to a Tampa Bay field goal to take the lead at 13 at thirteen ten. And the thing with and the thing that cost Green Bay in this game, Jordan Love did not play awful in the game, did not play. He played solid, you know. 39, 29, 24, two touchdown passes, no interceptions, only got sacked twice. I mean, they didn't run the football well. They didn't run the football well at all. 13, or excuse me, 17 rushing attempts, 60 yards. It's not a good afternoon running football by any, by any stretch of the imagination, especially when this game was nip and tuck uh, for the most part until uh, until late in the fourth quarter. But uh, this game was lost for Green Bay with their defense. They did. They couldn't get off the field, and this was the play. And this is the shot that broke the cameras back. That that won the game for Tampa. They had the third and four. Tampa Bay did up seven twenty-seven to twenty. Had the ball at their own forty-eight yard line. This is Tampa again. One more time. Six thirty-eight to go in the fourth quarter. Green Bay has two timeouts left to get off the field. Jordan Love has, has an opportunity to, to milk the clock and possibly not give Baker Mayfield an opportunity to see the field ever, see the field again for the remainder of regulation. And instead, third and four, blown coverage. You know, DB too late getting back to the ball and then a missed tackle, and David Moore goes the distance to put the to put the game on ice. And again, they allow Bacon Mayfield throw for three hundred and eighty one passing yards and four touchdown passes. Uh, they the Bucks were seven of eleven on third down. They couldn't get off the field on third down under any stretch of circumstances. Gave up four hundred and fifty two total yards of offense. Uh, they, they, um, you know, they, they only forced the one turnover, which was the Baker Mayfield fumble. It's just, and they, and the Temperament Buccaneer offense averaged seven point yards per per play from scrimmage. I mean, that that's a, that's a recipe for losing football games, especially in December. And the Green Bay Packers, who are sitting pretty at 6-6, six and six, taking down, riding a three-game win streak, winners of three of four, took down the Super Bowl, took down back-to-back Super Bowl contenders in the Lions on Thanksgiving, and the Chiefs at home on Sunday football on December 3rd. They blow the game last Monday night. They had absolutely no business winning again because of their awful defense, uh, allowing Tommy DeVito to march down the field uh, to set up a game-winning field goal for Randy Bullock in the closing seconds of the fourth quarter last Monday night on the 11th, and then they allowed Bacon Mayfield to look like Tom Brady and they put up 34 points uh, at Lambeau on Sunday afternoon. An awful, awful loss for the Green Bay Packers, who had everything right in front of them, who were going to cruise their way to the sixth seed. Uh, it, at least it looked like it on the, on the surface. And now they're sitting at 6-8, and eight, not in control of their own destiny, having to win out and then need help in order for them to make the postseason. That, my friends, is a reflection on how young and inexperienced this team is and a reflection on the coaching staff. If you're Matt LaFleur, you cannot, under any circumstances, allow your team to spit up all over themselves against the Giants and the Bucks in back-to-back weeks. When when, when you go out there and you showcase the the, the playoff-ready talent against the juggernauts, of the NFL and the Lions, and into a lesser degree, Kansas City, and then you turn around and you can't find a way to win a game against the Giants on Monday Night Football, and then you allow Baker Mayfield to come into your building and and, and to to use uh, and to and to essentially look like Brady and throw for touchdowns left and right all afternoon long. You don't deserve to make the playoffs, and that and that is just completely inexcusable and unacceptable. Losing football on from from uh, from the angle of the Green Bay Packers, unacceptable and just can not happen. Straight up, can't happen. So if Green Bay, even if they run the table and they finish nine and eight, but they don't make the playoffs, you know what? They deserve what they get. They deserve what they get, and they and they do have tiebreaker over the Rams, which is a positive, which is a positive form. But they lost to the Vikings back on October twenty ninth. The game that Kirk Cousins got hurt, and they play them New Year's Eve. They, that's a game they gotta have New Year's Eve against the Vikings if you're Green Bay. And if they lose to the Panthers, it it it, it, it be an absolute utter disgrace. I don't care how young a football team is, you can't lose to the to the Carolina Panthers in North Carolina. Sunday, sun on on Sunday afternoon. You just can't. You go into Carolina, you win a damn football game. How you doing? Keep moving. Beat the Vikings. New Year's Eve on the road, and then take the bear game and all the machinations. with the teams you need help from, you take it as as it as it comes. But an absolutely unacceptable loss on the part of the Green Bay Packers on Sunday afternoon. The Buffalo Bills beat the piss out of the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, which uh, which again proves the why the Buffalo excuse me the Dallas Cowboys cannot be trusted. They aren't a good football team on the road. It's all there. They're just not. I'm sorry. And listen and and how about you know? Listen, you want to call me boo boo the fool and say ah, jai you took the cheese jai you fell for the bait you fell for their BS hook line and sinker and everything else. If you want to say that, you know what? You have every right because I was the one that took the bait and took and and, and took them. And uh, and fell for the uh, the the, for the fugazi of the of the Cowboys, which especially after the game last night with inter- with uh, Philadelphia and Seattle, it said it says more about Philadelphia losing that game and getting their teeth kicked in by Dallas than it do- than it does uh, more so how great the Dallas Cowboys are. Especially, I thought that a little bit after the game on Sunday night, seeing Philadelphia invent a way to lose that game and blow that game to drew lock like in Seattle last night only confirms it that that game going on two Sundays ago says more about, uh, uh says more about Philly than it does. How good Dallas how, than it does say how good of a team the Dallas Cowboys are. But anyway, uh, but anyway, to get back to my point, it, it shows why they can't be trusted. They aren't good on the road. They can't be good teams outside of Philadelphia Eagles. And again, maybe I jumped the gun on considering them being a real Super Bowl contender in the NFC and Dak being an MVP candidate because he can't now win the MVP. After that slop fest at Orchard Park, he can't, he can't now unless he, he can change it by looking like Roger Staubach and Aikman Sunday against Miami and then follow and then Later that week, that Saturday against the Lions, and then so, and and still the division that it can it can, it's still right in front of him. But as of right now, Dak Prescott goes from number one, number two MVP candidate to about three, four, and five, and CMC. And I hate to admit it, Brock Purdy moves up a slot, and Tyree Kill, who I think if I had a vote, I, I'd vote him for my MVP this season. But Purdy and CMC move up the slots two and three respectively, and Prescott falls from about two down to four after that slop fest on, on Sunday afternoon. And I said it's not exactly all his fault, and his defense was a sieve, and i get to that in a minute. But it's the same thing with Dak Prescott. And this is what Cam Newton, for those of you that were out there slandering Cam Newton's name, thinking thinking that Cam Newton, who is super, who's a Heisman Trophy winner, national champion, NFL MVP uh, winner in 2015 and a super and a Super Bowl participant and have no idea say, what are you doing? Cam Newton, what the hell is he talking about? Like he's some average schmuck, you know? Like he's some like he's Joe Budden, you know? Giving insights on football on the Joe Budden podcast. He's some average schmuck that doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. That's never played it down the National Football League. This is Cam Newton now. You may not like Cam Newton. You might think that he, that, you know, he he went out bad. The end of his career was ugly. Whatever the case might be. Cam Newton in his prime was the top five quarterback in the NFL, and if you think not, you need to check the box scores and watch that and and rewatch the games and rewatch the highlight tape. Cam Newton was a bad man in in his prime. I mean, it was it was it was Rodgers, it was Rodgers, Manning, Brady, Breeze, and then it was and then it was Cam Newton, right there. Brady, Ro- R- Brady, Rodgers, Breeze, Manning, Cam Newton. He was that damn good in his prime, that damn good. And the i, and the asinine idea I heard leading up to that game on Sunday that Dak Prescott's a better quarterback than Cam Newton. What? What? Oh, are you crazy? Has wake me up when Dak Prescott plays an NFC Championship game. Okay. Wake me up when he plays in an NFC Championship game. Wake me up when he gets to a Super Bowl. And it could very well happen as soon as this season. Don't get me wrong. But talking about Dak Prescott in terms of his legacy and his body of work, so throwing this year, which is a work in braggers, out the window. Don't even go there. Don't even go there. I'm not trying to make Cam Newton out to be Joe Mon- out to be you know Joe Montana, but don't get it twisted. Cam Newton in his heyday was no slouch, not a Hall of Famer, but he had one of those careers where you can look back and you can say, "I, I was a bad, I was a bad man," back back in my prime. College at Auburn through the NFL, I was a bad man in my prime, and this man had the league in a chokehold in the mid 2000s chokehold. You, and if you don't believe me, go back and look up the offense. Not they had a solid defense. Luke Kuechly had, had solid players on defense on that team. Josh Norman, Norman was with Richard Sherman at that time. Pound for pound, one of the best quarterbacks in all of football. I'm talking about offense. Look at that offensive. Look at the offensive side of the ball during those mid 2010 Carolina Panthers teams. Specifically, the 2015 team in which he won MVP, got to the Super Bowl, and finished 15-1. and one. Because the Super Bowl lost 15-2. Look at the offensive talent he had. This man got to a Super Bowl with Ted Ginn Jr. as his number one wide receiver. Outside of Greg Olson, he didn't have much to work with offensively and then he got that team to have the best record in all of football and got them to the Super Bowl. Not best record in, in all football and then flamed out in the opening round. of playoff. No, 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 no. They got into the playoffs, kicked ass, took names, and got to the Super Bowl. They were one of those rare teams in this, what, in the last, what, 15 years or so They had a damn good regular season and followed it up with a deep playoff run. Not too many teams post the 07 Patriots can say that. That finished regular season with three losses or less and at least got to the Super Bowl. Cam Newton led that team. So the idea that Cam Newton doesn't know what the hell he's talking about because he calls Dak Prescott a system QB that doesn't blow anybody away is is is, is preposterous. And all it does is make is, is is vilify Cam's point and proves him out to be right because once again, Dak Prescott, when he's not in the specific, perfect cocoon of AT&T Stadium, and he gets outside in the wind and the rain in the environments up in Western New York and Buffalo, he gives me twenty-one to thirty-four. He goes till midway through the fourth quarter without throwing without throwing for a hundred yards passing in the game. Averages three point nine yards per pass play. Throws an interception and gets sacked three times. And I gotta hear about no, not on this show. Not happening. You 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 better, you better go you better go somewhere else with that. Cause I, cause I cause I ain't cause I ain't cause I ain't gonna let you get away with it, not 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 on this program, not on my watch. Mm-mm. Again, I understand, and I get the McCarthy in the defense in a minute. I understand that the that he was facing an uphill battle, but damn it, what separates the great quarterbacks from the mid and or the very good is their ability to bring their team and drag their team up from the abyss no matter how bad the coaching is and the game plan is for that particular game or how bad their their defense is playing, the good to great quarterback that, that wins Super Bowls is able to drag their team up from the abyss, put them on their back, and at least make the game competitive. Tie the game. Fight, scratch, and claw. Find a way to come back and tie the game. Take the lead in the fourth quarter. Something, and Dak Prescott does not do that, especially on the road, which is why this team ad infinitum throughout his NFL career has gone nowhere in January for for that exact reason. He never, ever, 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 ever with his team's back up against the wall when he has to deal with with episodes of bad coaching, whether it be Jason Garrett or now Mike McCarthy, when he has when his defense doesn't have a doesn't have a great game, when they're not getting after the quarterback like like it like they, like it's an unlimited supply of sacks out there, when they're not forcing turnovers, when they're not collecting up pick sixes, if you're Deron Bland up the yin yang and ten times over, you know you, if you're not being gifted short fields, this is what Dak Prescott gives you. He gives you average at best and putrid dog slop at his worst. And Mike McCarthy, been a solid play caller for Dallas this season. But when they're beating up on the trash and they're beating up on the garbage and they're winning and they're blowing teams out by 20 and 30 and 40 points, oh, he's he's Tom Landry. But when Dallas' backs are against the wall, or they're losing, or or and or in a in a deep, significant hole, where the game isn't lost, but the but they got to start playing with some urgency offensively before the before the football game slips away. Mike McCarthy, useless for his play calling and his decision making, absolutely useless. And this is the Cowboy defense; it's overrated. Hate to tell you, but it's overrated. Geno Smith went up and down the field against them, and we all know about the big day DK Metcalf had on had on them. Uh, they, they they surrendered they they uh, surrendered twenty eight points and allowed Jalen Hurts to have a solid day on their in their uh, loss to Philadelphia on November the fifth. Overrated defense. They're great against garbage, but when you play some off when you play an offense, especially on the road, home a little better. But you face them against a, an offense with some playmakers on the road. They, they're going to leave you. Hold, they're going to leave you holding the bag. Can't stop them. I mean, James Cook. He's still running. He ran the Dallas Cowboys out of the building on Sunday afternoon. 25 carries for 179 yards. He averaged 7.2 yards per carry. James Cook caught a touchdown pass and ran for a touchdown. The Buffalo Bills, as a team, ran the football 49 times for 266 yards. That's the most rushing yards the Dallas Cowboys defense has allowed since... Not 1960, not 1975, not 1989 or 2002, since 2020. He had 22, James Cook had 221 yards from scrimmage, the most by a Bills player in a game since 2009 when Fred Taylor did with 227. And then to make matters worse, I got to hear Michael Parsons open up his mouth. Bitching and moaning and belly aching about how he doesn't like it when people criticize the Dallas Cowboys saying, quote, what I don't understand is everyone just waits for the Cowboys to lose. I saw multiple analysts, people who are fake analysts, who someone who someone got jobs on TV saying, there goes your boy. It's almost to the point where it's almost sick, sick that former players are waiting for current players to fair fail so that they can have something to talk about. It's not even to just get into their names. I feel like at this point you kind of know who they are. It's like, oh, here he is. There's that person we've been waiting for. Why don't you want a person to lose so badly? I'm a fan of the game, right? Whether I'm playing Josh Allen or whoever. At the end of the day, I don't want to see Josh Allen hurt. I don't want to see him fail. I just want to see him continue his career. Obviously, when we're playing and lining up against one another, I'm trying to beat him. But it seems like there's a lot of people just waiting for for people to fail. Micah, get a clue, okay? Get 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 a app. Absolute clue. Get a clue. Your team had an opportunity, and even looks worse now. You got better because the Eagles' offense was 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 just aloof on Monday Night Football. But if you're a Dallas Cowboy fan today, you shouldn't be happy, especially after the Eagles. you should be pissed because you had an, because especially with how tight and how close Seattle played, you guys, you had a feeling. You, with Seattle having home field advantage, you had a feeling that if Philly didn't come out swinging, Seattle had an opportunity to return a favor to them with home field advantage, mind you, and an, and an extra day off of, of rest. And here it is. You were heading into this game at 10-3 and three with an opportunity to stay in first place, to build your first-place lead at that, solidify a case for, winning the, for getting the number two seed, even with Miami and the Lions forthcoming, knowing good and full well of the cupcake schedule that Philadelphia has to close out the season, their final three games, the Giants twice in Arizona, and your offense lays an egg, and your defense is still getting trampled by James Cook, and you sit there, you Michael Parsons, you have the temerity, the audacity, the chutzpah, the cluelessness, and the unmitigated goal to sit up here and and spew that garbage. Hey, Micah. You blew it! I don't think he heard you. You
3: blew it!
1: You blew it. You had an opportunity to build your lead, the NFC East, and if you guys don't win your division, and Philadelphia does, you can look to this game as to why. Your defense Stunk. You, the second coming of Lawrence Taylor, my ass. You were nowhere to be found in the game. Nowhere. And if you guys aren't for, and if you guys aren't returning back pick sixes and, and, and enforcing turnovers, you guys are a are an average defense at best. And if you allow your opponent to dictate the ebb and flow of the game before you have an opportunity to, you, you, you bend at the will of your opponent. You bend at the will of your opponent. And my guess to realize with great power comes great responsibility. With playing for Jerry Jones and playing for that Dallas Cowboy franchise, it comes with the territory. You're going to get hated. There are going to be people in the media, whether it be the Stephen A. Smiths of the world who do it kind of sort of tongue-in-cheek, or the people within the media that genuinely do not like the Dallas Cowboys, whether it's because of their, that they are former uh, players that play for the Cowboys' rivals, a la LaShawn McCoy, whatever the case might be. You're going to have people that are going to feel so about Dallas Cowboys. It just, it comes to the territory. You play for the Dallas Cowboys, you have to expect it. You play for the L.A. Lakers, you're going to have to expect it. You play for the Boston Celtics, you're going to have to expect it. You play for the New York Yankees, the L.A. Dodgers, the Boston Red Sox, you're going to have to expect it. You play for the Pittsburgh Steelers, you have to expect it. You play for certain franchises that are polarizing within the sport you're going to have to expect that that, that there's going to be people that extend far the average schmuck, you know, regular football fans. You're going to have to expect that it's going to expand to some people within the media that when the Dallas Cowboys have a bad day, they're going to let you hear about it. It comes with the nature of being a Dallas Cowboy. And if you don't want to give the haters anything to pounce on, how about you guys not give up 31 points and how many yards? 351 yards of total offense. 266 of them through the running game alone. You don't you don't want to hear criticism? You don't want to hear hear yourself getting analyzed and getting picked apart. Like the like the chicken experiment in middle school? Perform better. Prove to us that your defense can still play at an elite level on the road against elite competition. Because defense has failed to do that. Prove to me that your defense can still have a good day when you don't force turnovers. Prove to me your defense can have a great day where you don't. where if you're Michael Parsons, you don't have to get after the quarterback in order to take over a football game. Prove to me that. Come to the territory, Micah. Every player that has worn that star on that helmet has had to deal with haters for the better part of the last 50 years almost. If you don't like it, play for the Arizona Cardinals. Okay? Deal with it and win. Embrace it. Deal with it. Don't m- belly ache and bitch and moan on your dope a little podcast. No, but leave the podcasting debate. Play better. You and all your defense. Play better. You can't be a podcaster as a quote-unquote uh, guilty by association member of the media in one breath and then be a football player the next, and then scream and yell when the media does their job. You tend to eat part of the media too. You host a podcast crying out loud. And that's the thing that kills me too. I'm all for professional athletes having their voice and having their platform and everything. But at some point, and it's just a, just a sidebar, a sidebar rant, but at some point, when when does enough, when is enough enough? Your job is to play football. If you want to talk about football, you can hang your cleats up, and I'll be a bevy of different production companies that are willing you to pay you a, 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 a pretty penny to get you to talk football for a living. But make up your mind: you want you want to be a podcaster and you want to do what I do and talk about football, or you want to play it because you can't be both and be great at the same time. Don't believe me. Ask Jason Kelsey who got caught for a false start penalty moving the football up a whole half, a whole half foot that killed a job from Philadelphia last night and go ask his brother, his younger brother, who's busy running around halfway around the universe going to these Taylor Swift concerts and he can't catch a damn football. Slowest, molasses, whole nine yards. Make up your mind. That's another thing that drives me crazy. The active player with the podcast, Draymond Green, does it enough and it infuriates living piss out of me. And here it is, Michael Parsons. You know, he'll stink, he'll st- he stinks up the joint on Sunday and and hops in front of the microphone the next, and then has the nerve and the balls to ask, well, "Why is everybody criticizing me? Because you, because you lost by twenty one points, Michael, on the road? That's why." To a, now granted, improving, but inconsistent, at least as of this moment, Buffalo Bills team. A team that, whom you beat the week before, won about what? Three, four weeks ago in in overtime, but they found a way to win. And they were able to score on Buffalo too. Something that your quarterback that you're so trigger-happy to defend all the damn time couldn't do. My goodness gracious. God, it's it's enough. Lawrence Taylor. The second coming of Lawrence Taylor. Yeah, right. Give me a break. Good Lord, have mercy. Ravens win 23-7. Clinch a playoff berth. Jaguars disappoint. Uh I tell you, with uh is there an, oh wait, hold on. I think there was another stat I wanted to give you for uh Buffalo. Josh Allen. Uh, another tenth game with the tenth game of the season with a passing and a rushing touchdown. First player in NFL history with ten such games in a season. Uh Baker Mayfield, I meant to give you this one too. Uh third QB in NFL history with three hundred and seventy five passing yards, four touchdown passes and a pat and a passer rating of one fifty eight point three. That's a perfect passer rating. Uh, in a road game, Nick Foles, Ken O'Brien, uh, with a previous two that did it. Buffalo, only team in the NFL in the last 30 years. They have three touchdown drives of 11, plays 75 yards or more in the first half of a football game. Uh, the Ravens, how about them? Uh, it marked the 12th time that Lamar Jackson started and his, and his team rushed for 250-plus yards or more. 22nd time Lamar Jackson outrushed the entire opponent by himself. Uh, it's the most in NFL history by a starting quarterback since the stat was tracked in 1950. Lamar Jackson didn't have a great game. He was high 14 to 24, 171, one touchdown pass, one interception, got sacked three times, um, had 12 uh, rushing, uh, rushing carries, 97 yards on the ground averaging 8.1 yards per carry losing, uh, losing, Keonten Mitchell to a torn ACL is, absolute, is a killer, killer, brutal injury for him. They're already missing J.K. Dobbins, who was gone for the season earlier this year, and, of course, Mark Andrews. And it's just another uh, just crucial, crucial uh, crushing injury to the offensive side of football for Baltimore. Uh, they played all right offensively, not great, should have scored more points. Hardball forfeiting a field goal with his episode of idiocy, what else is new? Um, their defense will have their hands full against against San Francisco on Christmas, and that more so is not maybe you can say you can make the argument it's not going to be as big of a deal for Baltimore. Now that game could be the one that wins the that clinches the division for them if if, if things play out and if things play out that way, you know, throughout the weekend heading into that game on Monday night. But it's more of a big deal in the sense that it's a litmus test for the Ravens so we all of us as a nation and the Ravens' fan base can find out how good the Ravens really are. We know that they're the best team in the AFC, but how good are they in terms of a step up in class against San Francisco? I think this is what this game shows Nick's significance more than anything, how good of a football team they are against San, compared to San Francisco. Are are they on the same level, or are they a tier below San Francisco? Or are they above, or are they the same? I think that's what this game entails more than anything. If they were to if they were to give San Francisco a good fight on the road, could it be a good sign? That if they were to play each other in Vegas in February in the Super Bowl, what great of a chance would Baltimore have to win the football game? I think that, I think that's I think. What this game entails more than specific, you know, seeding and number one seed and best record and everything else. I think that's what this game entails. We got plenty of time to break down that game. But the Ravens, they played an okay game and they didn't play great. You know, I wasn't like, oh my God, the Ravens was like, played what a performance, what a great game. And I didn't think that. the offense was very pedestrian. They had a great day running the football, but that's about it. Lamar didn't have a great day throwing the football. They weren't great on third down, 5-12, actually pretty bad, actually. Um, I mean, they had a good day in terms of total yardage and everything, but they weren't great, good on third down. They weren't good in the passing game. They're okay. Okay. And listen, when you're going up against Jacksonville Jaguars, who had an awful sequence at the end of the half, um, you, if you're Trevor Lawrence, has been in football a long time, and Doug Peterson, who's his head coach, who's a Super Bowl championship head coach, you can't allow Trevor Lawrence to throw the football close to the numbers uh, with less than 15 seconds to go before the half and you have no timeouts. And it's imperative in that situation when you're down 10 nothing to walk away with points. And he throws the football close to numbers like that. The guy doesn't. The ball carrier doesn't get out of bounds, and the and the Jaguars end the half getting nothing, running out of time. And that's just that's completely unacceptable football. Washington can't get, catches the ball at the at the four yard line. Can't get out of bounds and can't get back to the line of scrimmage in time to spike the football. Uh, with enough time left to kick a field goal to at least make it a one-possession game heading into the halftime. Just completely unacceptable. Unacceptable on Trevor Lawrence's part. Unacceptable on Doug Peterson's part. It's just, it just can't happen. These guys have been around football too long enough. They've won championships. Peterson at the NFL level, Lawrence at the college level. That just can't happen. you got to be aware of how much time is left, where you are on the field, what you need, the situation. Just an awful, awful, awful sequence by Jacksonville. Throwing the fact that Brandon McMan- that uh, Brandon McManus is missing field goals left and right, I mean, and he had and Trevor Lawrence. He's drive the team's driving, uh, the team's driving. They got the ball inside. Uh, they got the ball at the Ravens twenty yard line on a third and seventeen. Trevor Lawrence, you know, he tucks it and runs, and a ball just squirts right out of his hands. C- throws away a possession throws away a potential touchdown drive at bare minimum of field goal, which would have made it, which would have made it a, which would have tied the game at the least given Jacksonville the lead, had they been able to punch it in for a touchdown and instead to get the ball, to Ravens back to go down the field, score a touchdown, take the lead or excuse me, extend their lead to 10, nothing Baltimore. It's just awful, 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 awful. Left a crap ton of points on the table Defense is not that good. defense is not that good. Had a better night, all things being considered, uh, than games previous against Baltimore and since, excuse me against Cleveland, and Cincinnati, but uh, they didn't make enough plays in terms of the turnovers. They were unable to stop the run. And Trevor Lawrence, man, he's looking very Daniel Jones esque. And if you think that that's a stretch, I read you this. I read you this stat sheet in the in the first forty eight career starts. 28 and 20 20 and 28 that's his record. Daniel Jones 19 and 29. Passer rating 85.5. Daniel Jones was 85.4. 55 passing touchdowns 35 interceptions. Daniel Jones 55 and 33. 12,204 passing yards passing and rushing yards combined. Daniel Jones 11,992. Yards per attempt 6.7 to 6.7. You don't want to be, if you're Trevor Lawrence, who was advertised and who was talked about and hyped to be the savior for the Jacksonville Jaguars franchise, it's a bad omen that you're in the same conversation and the same category and in the same sentence with Daniel Jones. He's got to do a better job of taking care of the football. He's has He has some ugly, ugly throws during the game on Sunday night. He leaves you a lot left to be desired. In his first three years in the NFL, he's left a lot to be desired. 25, 43, 264 on a touchdown pass with the fumble that cost him deep in Ravens territory. that's awful, awful football on throwing uh, throwing the, throw the the, uh, the uh, time management gaff at the end of the half, Ryman accidentally. that is an awful, awful sequence by Trevor Lawrence at the end of, uh, throughout that football game and in its entirety. Awful job by Trevor Lawrence inexcusable, and absolutely cannot happen under any circumstances whatsoever. Well, I said, and I said at the top of the program that we were going to be introducing a new variable to the program, and that is the voicemail uh, part. Let us begin, and by the way, you guys can send me your voicemails uh, to my email. You can do it, you know, voice memos on your phone, uh, which I know iPhones have, Androids, I believe, have it as well, but record yourself give me, you know, a five-minute message, uh, no uh, longer than that, uh, about anything anything involving the world of sports, at least at this moment in time right now, the National Football League. Email them to me. Uh, at my email address, shields, S-H-I-L-D-S, J A I 15, at gmail.com, and I will play them and react to them on air for you on an episode of the Yamatelka T.I.E.S. podcast. Let's see who this first one is. Oh, I recognize this guy. My buddy, my brother, and diehard Seahawks fan who was going crazy last night when Jackson Smith and Jigba caught the go-ahead and ended up being the game-winning touchdown pass. We'll hear from him his reaction to his Seahawks saving their season on Monday Night Football.
0: What a game. What a game. Um, Coming into this game, it was a 50-50 chance I think we were going to win. Sorry, I know my voice may sound a little raspy. My voice is gone, especially that last drive. My voice is gone, but 50-50 chance I think we're going to win this game. After the first drive, I was like, oh, this is going to be a long night. Scoreless through half. And then, second half is where we really turned it on. Kenneth Walker started to do his things. Blocks started laid out correctly. And Drew, um, you could tell running the football definitely helped out in the past game, opened up the play action, and even um, shotgun. It was, I mean, during the second half, it wasn't really, really wasn't a time where, like, only a couple times where Kenneth Walker didn't have anywhere to go. Uh, I mean let talk about Drew Locke, man um, You know, the first two First two times we saw him this year I mean Should've won against the Rams He didn't play amazing with that And should've be, we should, He played stinks decent stinks. Against San Fran, he just threw those two picks But I, mean, I, I guess this is really a testament on What a full week of, From Drew Locke looks like and before we can practice on how we can deliver. Um I think it looked good in the second half again. I think this is a second we're this season this season we've been a second half team. And us being a second half team is good and bad, but I'm a quickly dive into the game. Um <clears throat> so that last drive, I mean, first of all, what did Pete what is Pete thinking? Calling that second timeout. I feel as though we should have snapped it and everything else. And not call called that timeout even though they've Got overtime, he made the field goal kick. Um, I would have, but I'm glad I didn't see what the results would have been if he didn't call the timeout, because I don't know if he would have got that. But, I mean, on third and fourth down, man, I mean, something we have been lacking all season, which is converting, we were pretty good. And I think that's a big testament on why we won today and just winning games in the future. Um, I mean, the last drive, I mean, you. I think it's two to three times on third down and long. I mean, we've just got the first down, and it's not just a 10-yard game. This is like 20, 30-yard games. I mean, both by DK. DK coming up huge in these last drives. I mean, really all season, it's been like when Geno's had those comeback drives, right, making a comeback drive, even when you look at the Rams game and all these other games that Geno has <laughs> came back and thrown um, out the field to drive the football down the field. And even tonight, I mean, DK has been a, you know, I mean, even when you look back back on Russell, I mean, DK is a fourth, like a two-minute fourth quarter go-to. Like, he's going to come up with the ball most of the time. I mean, there's something about just throwing the ball up on the sideline. He's just going to come down with it. He's going to try to and everything else. He played phenomenal. Uh, Ty Lockett was very disappointed with A couple of catches he could have made today that could have – uh, really helped us, but, you know, I think really DK really bailed him out. And just that third and ten pass to JSN. I mean, wow. What a catch. What a throw, first of all. Put it right where it needs to be and good hands by JSN. Uh Not only securing it and bringing it in, but controlling it while it goes to the ground. Um Wow. Yeah, Drew, Drew log was slinging it tonight. Especially... Especially deep. I mean, he threw some good balls. Except for the one, he overthrew the locket. But even then, that was still a beautiful ball. Like, I didn't... Deep-wise, I didn't see any wobbly passes. But it was the, the little shorter routes. I saw a little wobbly. But, you know, I'm not complaining. I'm, I'm happy as I can be Everyone today. Tonight. Um, let me go back to the defense. The defense scared me coming to the game. Because I didn't know it was going to... I didn't know if Hurts... I mean, you you got hurt. you got Swift. Swift, we had a hard time... Um, containing. I feel like Philly would have stuck with their run with Swift most of the game. They probably wouldn't want because he was gaining five, seven yards a carry. I mean, every time he touched the ball, it was a first down. Um, and you have AJ Brown, Devontae Smith out there, and I didn't really see a difference maker. It's like we saw the Eagles last time we played them when they had Carson Wentz. Um, we continue to go 8 0 against the Eagles, and we've never lost, and we haven't lost in the past 15 matchups, 16 matchups now. But we're 8-0 with Pete Carroll. Um, I mean, Julian Love tonight was amazing. He was was making plays when he needed to be. He was where he needed to be. And I think I speak for a lot of Seahawks fans. He's Jamal Adams' replacement. Um, I just see a different... I mean, it's the same role that he's playing. I just see a difference when he's in, not Jamal. And when you really think about it, we were a better team. Like, when you really look at it, before Jamal came back, we were defensively, we weren't amazing. But, like, we were making stops. I feel like just Jamal is that weak link for us. And we got to get a trade or release him. We got to do something. Because uh, in coverage, he's not he's not that well. And if you he's plug so in Jamal f- instead of Julian on, on, on these plays, I, I think these are big games and catches that would will, will kill us and we would lost the game. But, I mean, how about Julian Love? Getting two picks. The second one, the first, both of them were amazing. Second one, I mean, what to get that first. First of all, that first toe down and the second foot down. And it was just an amazing game tonight. Um, Would prefer, prefer to blow out. But, I mean, a win is a win. We're up at 7-7. Seven seven. We're still alive in the playoffs. I mean, and, our step, and it's crazy because we go on this uh, four-game losing streak. I mean you should beat the Cowboys and everything else and a lot of other teams but now our schedule stuff to come easier as we play Tennessee uh Pittsburgh and Arizona and if we keep this up and the card and the uh, Vikings and-, and Packers and the Rams keep losing we are going to either be the 6th or 7th seed. And my gosh, like that is- that is a great look and I mean, what are the Cowboys now? They have four wins, so, I mean, it's hard. It's impossible, but even if the Cowboys lose out, four I mean, losses. never mind. Four losses. Forget
1: that. <laughs> oh, boy, that's uh, that's my brother. Happy Seahawks fan. I was going crazy. And thing with my brother, when he gets excited about his Seahawks, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't know how to celebrate, like, to himself. Like, he doesn't know how to run and, and you know, run and pump his fist. And Him making noise doesn't want to bother me. What he likes to do is, like, he likes to basically whoever's in the room, he likes to pick up and, like, run around the house with them, you know, like King Kong or whatever. And it's like, I'm like, yo, I, I got, I, I'm showered. you going to, you know, I, I don't. I got my uh, – I don't have socks on. I got my slippers. And you pick me up in front of me. I'm I'm tweeting as he's doing his alter. But he's picking me up. He's going crazy. But I was so happy for him that his team was able to pull out a victory last night. All I wanted was for them to just make the game competitive and to make the Eagles sweat. And uh, it's funny. You know, their offense did nothing for, th- for a half, and they found a way to beat Philadelphia, and their offense was damn near perfect against Dallas. And they lost the game. It's funny how football works, man. Here's um, here's uh, another one I got from Sal in New Jersey. He wants to talk about his Packers.
3: Sal in New Jersey talking about the Packers. The Packers have an organizational problem, and they've had for a long time. The issue is Mark Murphy. Mark Murphy, once he fired Mike McCarthy, implemented a power ladder that has the head coach report to the GM, who reports to him. They hired Matt LaFleur, who looked like he could be good, and for a while was good. But he's being exposed weekly that Aaron Rodgers covered up most of his flaws. Now with no Aaron Rodgers and Jordan Love starting his first year, there's not much protection LaFleur has from these bad play calls and the overall bad running of a team. The GM also looks bad because Brian Gutekunst built a team that really isn't very good. They spent eight draft picks or eight first-round draft picks on the defensive side of the ball, and they have one of the worst defenses in the league. Now, you could say it's the defensive coordinator, Joe Barry, which would then again fall under LaFleur, and a lot of it is. But at some point, even with a bad scheme, these guys have to make plays, and they just simply don't. The problem being on Murphy is because nothing ever changes in Green Bay. They stick with people way too long. They stuck with Ted Thompson years after he should have been fired they stuck with Mike McCarthy years after he should have been fired. Yesterday, LaFleur again defended Joe Barry, saying that now's not the time to talk about him being fired. Now, Joe Barry has an expiring contract. There's no reason to keep him on the staff right now because you know he's not coming back next year. The Packers just lost two games in which the defense made Tommy DeVito and Baker Mayfield look like Tom Brady and Patrick Mahomes. This is inexcusable for a team that controlled their own playoff destiny, but no longer do now because of these two losses to way inferior teams. One of which, the most recent one, was in Lambeau, where, again, if they won out, they would be making the playoffs. Now they need at least the Seahawks or the Rams to lose, And they need to win out. But the Seahawks and the Rams have an easy schedule where the Rams' only tough game is the last week of the year against the 49ers. And by that point, after this Eagle loss last night, the 49ers will probably be resting their starters. So the whole point is that there's an organizational issue in Green Bay. Sticking to guys that clearly don't have it. And the longer the Packers are sticking with Joe Barry, the more it shows that Matt LaFleur doesn't know what he's doing either. Because in no way can you look at this team and not make an adjustment. Now you have players like Devondre Campbell coming out, saying that they're no longer going to play through injuries because it doesn't matter what they do. When the, when the shit hits the fan... Things go against him. Now, he could be talking about the fans, but I'm thinking he's talking about coaching. There's a weird situation going on with Jair Alexander where he's practicing all week the last five or six weeks, and he hasn't played. And every writer has said just the situation is weird, and that's all they're saying. I think now that he won't play for Barry and LaFleur and he's not going to play less than 100% for guys he doesn't believe in and risk a further injury. I think the Devondre Campbell tweet this morning justifies that claim, and I think that really is the new theory that I'm going with. I've previously said Jair doesn't want to be here because he just signed a big contract and then checked out but I have to walk that back and apologize for that because I think that he wants to be out there but not for the guys he has to play for. And again, this is all an organizational issue. When people leave Green Bay, they usually talk about the organization in not the most positive light. Players don't get re-signed to big contracts. They don't get third or fourth contracts there, they believe in the system over the players and they don't value the players enough. Look at guys like Micah Hyde, who went on to have a great career. Packers never offered him a contract. They have let a million guys like that walk. I think that everything is coming to head When you don't have a Hall of Fame quarterback covering all the problems. And Mark Murphy has a forced retirement age of July 2025. And until he's forced to retire, the Packers won't truly be relevant. Because as we saw in years prior, and especially these last two, Matt LaFleur is not the coach to win a big game. This is the second year in a row The Packers have controlled their playoff destiny and blew their chance. I don't think they'll make the playoffs this year anymore. They didn't make the playoffs last year, obviously. And even if they make the playoffs, as we saw in the last couple years that they did make the playoffs, they get blown out or embarrassed or choke in their biggest games under LaFleur. So I don't really know of much hope. With the organization right now, but I will say that I think they did find their quarterback and a wide receiver core, but they're only going to go as far as the organization lets them. And right now, that's not very far.
1: Sal said a lot. Um... Yeah, it's it's been an organizational failure for why the Green Bay Packers have not found a way. They couldn't find a way to get back to. Obviously, the on field stuff sticks out like a sore thumb. But it begins every like my my father told me all the time growing up as a kid. So he says, son, everything rises and falls on leadership, and that just and that applies in so many different facets of life, sports, business. And entertainment, which are in, in forms of you know the Green Bay Packers are a business. The NFL is a business. Major League Baseball, NHL, NBA. Those are in. Those are that's under the the business. They're in the business. I mean, the league is in the business of of of, of marketing itself and having itself popular amongst the masses and being relevant in pop culture. The individual teams itself are in the business of winning. And the Green Bay Packers, they're in the business of winning. But the business that they've been going at it for quite some time, is it it's hasn't worked. You know, Martin, Brian Gunekist, obviously, with his poor drafting decisions, you know, 2020 draft, he drafts defense instead of maybe T. Higgins, who went all the way to the second round. The my aforementioned Cincinnati Bengals coming out of Clemson. He doesn't draft him for some peculiar reason. Instead, he drafts Jordan Love who, you know, looks like he could be the future for the Green Bay Packers. You know, he's played well. He's had a solid, solid damn good season for him this year uh, in his first season as a starter for the Green Bay Packers. But in terms of what fit the Green Bay Packers franchise in that moment, they needed a guy that could get them to the next level to get them to win a Super Bowl, and they chose not to do so. 2020, uh, they 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 lose that home to Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the NFC Championship game. Their offense is a sieve, and their special teams the next year against San Francisco at home once again, this time in the snow, and they get upset at home and lose to San Francisco. And then, like Sal mentioned, they had their season right in front of them, their playoff hopes and their destiny in the palm of their hands, When on a nice little win streak, you know, in the back half of the season, ran into a wall. Aaron Rodgers can't beat Detroit all of a sudden, and they missed the playoffs. So it's uh it's it, the changes need to be made. Gunakis, Mark Murphy, all the way on down, and this is one of those situations where, where a team like Green Bay could use, you know, could use having an owner, you know, being that they could use having that figurehead that's worth billions that owns the team that calls the shots, and you know because he's you know he's the guy in charge. Like there's no like big bad boss top of the gourmet packer organization it's mark murphy who was kind of like the big bad boss per se but he's not the owner of the team you know he i think it was i if i'm not mistaken that you know there's like a board of trustees or, or like the board of shareholders of all the people that you know, it's a community-owned franchise they don't have you know they don't have an owner uh, one specific figurehead of an owner per se so it's, a, it's it's difficult, man. It's difficult. They have talent. They are they have uh, you know players that's that's going to be good for that team in a not too distant future. But losing back to back games to the Giants and the and the Bucks when your playoff fate is in the palm of your own hands, and all you got to do is win out at six and six and you'll make the playoffs. And and I at least I thought and I discussed after the Chief game it was a realistic opportunity. This team could go eleven and six as a wild card. T- at, that's unacceptable. Completely, completely, now they're six and eight. It's completely next level, and and everything he said about Matt Lafleur is isn't anything that I haven't screamed and yelled on this program in seasons past before about him. He is one overrated head coach. Now I gave him credit for having a team ready to pair ready and prepared, and the job they did against Detroit and and uh, Kansas City. But I, if I gotta praise him for for stepping up in the competition, I gotta c- condemn him for the steps down in competition. And it falls on him, man. He's the head coach. He's the head man in charge. And like South said, you know, you, you're seeing the exposed flaws that that were lying underneath the surface that the high-end talent of Aaron Rodgers covered up for a, for a good hot minute, and now they're being exposed. So, But they got some work to do. Not all hope was lost. I mean, can they still make the playoffs? Yes. But, uh, you know, if you want that, you know, to experience the Packers playing playoff football again ha- after having not the... After having not experienced that last season, but I mean they changed the need to be at the top, and uh, it's going to be this season's a learning curve for uh, Lafleur. C- certainly, it's a learning ter- learning curve for him. But we'll see where the Packers go from here. Uh, they gotta win this game against Creepy. if they ever if they want to save this season and save themselves from being laughed at. They they can't lose the Carolina Panthers on the road. And finally, who do we have?
2: Chad in California. Sarah's thoughts. Yo, Jai, what's up, man? What's it's your up, boy Jack? Chad out here in California, bro. Just want to talk about the NFL real quick. I mean, first off, we know that San Francisco is the creme de la creme. I'll put it this way, man. When I was a kid playing Madden, I'd stack my team up. I'd have Elway, I'd have Barry Sanders, I'd have Jerry Rice, I'd have Reggie White. I mean, you name it, man. They were on my roster playing franchise. That's what John Lynch is doing right now. I mean, the Niners are absolutely stacked. He came up on Chase Young, obviously McCaffrey. He's drafted well. I mean, he hasn't missed yet. Kyle Shanahan has all the weapons he needs to get his offense going. Give me the Niners in the Super Bowl. I think they're gonna run through the NFC. And on the AFC, Mahomes and Reed, that show was over. Belichick, over. Baltimore got a chance. I know you're out there in Baltimore. I know you don't like them, but they're in your backyard. The Ravens are nice, man. You got to give Harbaugh credit. But I think the Bills are the team to watch in the AFC for the last three or four years. We've been crowning them prematurely, and I don't think they were able to handle all that pressure, man. I I think they folded, thinking that they just were going to be handed the AFC. I mean, the Bengals got in them, the Chiefs got in them, and and they couldn't really handle it. Well, this year they got a little adversity. They're not really flying high now. They're kind of going under the radar, backs against the wall, got to prove it to us. And I think that's a better role for them. They went into kind of a villain role and and kind of a doubted role, you know, hated on role. And and I think the bills are taking advantage of that. I think they're getting hot at the right time. They're playing together. They understood what was at stake. They seen the playoffs, you know, slipping away from their grasp, man. Give me the bills and Niners in the Super Bowl. I do think the Niners will dominate, but at this point, I don't think you can sleep on the Bills, man. I just got that dog in them, Dogs.
1: Well, Sunday they certainly proved that um, James Cook, again, he's still running. And, uh, you know, Sean McDermott, who has had his just, oh, he's been awful at moments and times throughout this season. But it can all be forgiven if he can find a way to get the Bills to the Super Bowl. Uh, and they, you know, and the division even is not even out of the question for them too. You know, they went out and Miami loses to either Baltimore and or, um, Dallas and the division in the division is, uh, is Buffalo's. So they're not even out of the question in terms of winning the division, uh, winning the division as of yet. Uh, but listen, Buffalo's got a hell of a chance. They they're, they're, Everyone's high on them, which would scare me. Now, all of a sudden, everybody's starting to buy into Buffalo again. It's almost like the better they, like Chad said, the, they do better and they've performed better when nobody expects anything from them. They've been under the radar rather than, than the media darling to win a Super Bowl like they were for everybody and their mother last season. Um, You know, the Ravens, I, you know, I can't stand them. Chad, you know that. I... I I detest the Baltimore Ravens. When they play well, um, and it's funny because i had having a conversation in my head, do I rather ha- do I like it when the Ravens have a bad season or do I like it for them when they have a good regular season and they flame out in the playoffs? I think when my team's having a bad year, I'd rather have them have a bad year. But when my team's having a good year, I mean, and they're kind of sort of having a good year, eight and six, whatever. But... I would rather them have a good season, and see them flame out in the end, like in 2019 when they had number one, had the best record in the AFC, number one seed, had the bye, and then they Tennessee and Tannehill and Derek Carr came in there and punched them in the face. I'd rather have them have that fate than have them, you know, three and fourteen and and irrelevant by, uh, by by Veterans today. So I was thinking, I was having the conversation with myself as I was bored stiff while Trevor Lawrence is failing to complete the Ford pass on third down for Jacksonville. but um, And San Francisco is, like he said, the creme de la creme of the NFC. The only way they could not get to a Super Bowl is if they either got ambushed in their first-round playoff game or they had a catastrophic injury happen to any of their superstar players on the offensive side of the football between now and now. And uh, in the playoffs, which I don't anticipate uh, in happening. Uh, Let's see. I'm simply waiting for my buddy Jacob, but it's been a long show, over two hours. Uh, So I am – so I looks like my buddy Jacob, who's a Cowboy fan, I want to hear his thoughts, who's been slacking on me as of late in terms of him making a contribution to the program – so it looks like we're going to have to hold off on JB until Friday's program. Uh, and we'll get his thoughts on the Dallas Cowboys some other time. But if you haven't heard, please subscribe. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Yama podcast. If you liked what you heard, please not hesitate to subscribe. Wraps up another episode for you. I will be back Friday on a football Friday to preview... Week sixteen and all the works. It's your boy Josh Shields. Be safe. Be blessed. Y'all take care. See ya. <laughs>